Welcome to episode, I don't even know, 36 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs in gray and cold, the cow, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, joining me in a return visit to the co-host chair in what I'm sure is a much warmer climate in Tempe, Arizona. It is the always well-quaffed Eric Loggenhagen. Eric, how are you? Quaffed. You're very quaffed. I'm good. Um... Been doing all the baseball stuff, that uh, that pinnacle of activity when all the instructs are happening concurrent with Fall League and uh, their first pitch Arizona, the fantasy baseball conferences in town at which I speak. Um, that's all past now, so just doing two games a day feels like light. And it's awesome. <laughs> it's like the best – this is the best part where the weather turns here and it's perfect and there's just all the baseball to see. Um, instructs still going on? Yeah, the, on the West Valley uh, until Saturday is is the last day. Um, tomorrow, I think, will be my last day at Instructs if I go to Reds Dodgers. Um, I've just seen the least of the Reds because I've not been allowed on their complex, really, although I have been there one time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, you know, like the one day, the one day I was in the Cleveland side of the complex, they had their Instructs game at the normal time in the middle of the day. Did you just kind of stroll over? And I no just kind of strolled over from one side of the complex to the other. And no yeah, I, it's yeah, I, it's one of the the two two rules in life in general. But I, that that I think apply very very well to what you're doing, especially with what you're doing in the age of COVID. Uh, number one, just act like you belong. Yep. And and number two, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. A pair of khakis and a polo shirt. You're rolling. And a backpack, and it's like nothing. Mm-hmm. No one is going to be like, are you supposed to be here? <laughs> <laughs> nope. I am. But yeah, um, like you, then I grab someone, and I'm just like, hey, if, if anyone comes over to me and asks, I'm consulting for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if I know you've done some double ups, and obviously you can do double ups on the right day in Arizona Fall League with a, a day game and a night game. Yep. So have you done any triples yet? Yes, and actually this Saturday I will have the opportunity to watch 36 innings of baseball. You got a quad? Um, wait, wait. It's, what are the, the, the real quick? What is your Saturday itinerary? Instructs somewhere. It is getaway day, so they will start at 10 or 10:30 a.m. That they'll be super, super intense and involved, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. That's been the one downside, and definitely the last week of East Valley instructs. Last week was just like, oh, these kids are done, um, and then. The ASU plays Long Beach State 16-inning fall scrimmage at 1 p.m. Okay. See, now you're cheating. There's your 16 innings. Okay. And then night game, fall league night game. Nice. Um, But yeah, there are some times when I'll be at three or even four games during the day, but will not have seen four games worth of innings because I'm like, 
starting the day at a fall league game and then on the same co- complex's backfield will be an instructs game that starts mm-hmm. an hour later and then I'll catch, you know, the back half of that and then go somewhere else um for like they staggered instructs start times this year for the first time ever. So there are like some 5 p.m. starts to instructs games on the West Valley where rather than fight back across the valley traffic at rush hour, I just stay west side and hit, you know, an intrucks game until the traffic clears and then right, I can around. get out of there and get to the, the back two thirds of a fall league game closer to home in the East Valley. It's been pretty awesome. Nice. Uh, yeah. Um, we're going to talk about baseball on the show because it is ostensibly a baseball show. We'll talk about the playoffs. We'll talk about uh, some front office stuff. Uh, I do want to get into the Arizona Fall League has started and the rosters are really impressive on a prospect level. It's a good year for prospect yes. watching the Arizona Fall League. Eric's obviously been doing a lot of games. We'll just run through some players there. Uh, our special guest will be Katie Wu, who covers the Cardinals for The Athletic. If you listened last week, um, Stephen Goldman and I were kind of uh, caught silent by the news that the Cardinals had fired manager Mike Schilt. Uh, and we'll talk to Katie about that and what's really going on. And of course, when it comes right down to it, nobody really knows what happened there. And But we'll talk about that in the future of the Cardinals. Uh, from there, uh, we'll get into our musical guests. It's more Kowloon Walled City because they got ripped off last week because our guest kind of didn't work out. And so we only had two songs. And so they're great. And I want to play more of their songs. So we're doing that. Uh, we'll get into some of your long emails, including one drunken one. We'll catch up with Eric, who I'm told has a great story. I'm I'm, I'm warning you now. See, that, by saying that, it better be great. Uh, we'll get into our moment of culture and then we'll be out of here. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about the big stuff, which is the playoffs. Um, we are currently, this is always a, you know, it's always a screwy thing to have a, a weekly podcast on the schedule just because uh, it's Thursday afternoon and there's a game tonight and we could really look like morons by the time this this comes out. And that's okay. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be the first time and it's not going to prevent us from giving you some hot takes. Um, let's start with the American League Championship Series, Astros and the Red Sox. It's been a, a, a compelling series. Um, the Red Sox took a two to one lead and was like, oh, here we go. And then the Astros uh, became the Astros uh, with their lineup that is just unbelievable. Yes. Um, scoring a truckload of runs. And now they go uh, back home for two games, up three to two, um, and, which is exactly what happened in the 2019 World Series. And that didn't work out. So uh, game six will be Nady Ovaldi versus Luis Garcia. Um, you know, the, it's it's if you look at this series, I don't know, kind of rationally and realistically, the Astros are up three to two, um, but they're also in a position to win the games they lost. Like they've, it's, they're they're the better team here. It doesn't mean they're going to win it, but they're the better team here, even even with their pitching issues, which are significant. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right that this series has been interesting, even though the average margin of victory has been something like six right. runs, uh, because it has been a lot about like. How are these teams positioning themselves for the next games then throughout the game that, you know, is basically over already in the middle of the game? Um, and so that has been kind of interesting to watch. Uh, yeah, like the, the Astros lineup is unbelievable. Walk me through acquiring Jordan Alvarez and like... <laughs> It's a great story if you want to. I'll, I'll tell you. I do because remember, folks need to remember like the Astros didn't sign Jordan Alvarez. They traded for him before he had even played a professional game and was just still an older for you know like he was in the D, in the DR right with the Dodgers. Yes, there's him. there's a lot of fun aspects to the Jordan Alvarez trade. So we had seen Jordan Alvarez uh, prior to him signing with the Dodgers. He signed with the Dodgers for one million dollars. Uh, he was part seen... of that gigantic Dodgers class of Cubans, most of which did not work out. Right. 
and towards so, the end of that of that international period as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, we had seen Jordan. Um, we actually actually had a workout by you in Arizona that we went to. Um, we really liked Jordan. He ultimately signed with the Dodgers for one million dollars. Um, the Dodgers uh, called us on I think it was the final day. I think it was July thirty first um, with interest in Josh Fields, um, which I get. Josh Fields. Obviously, Josh Fields had its moments in the big leagues, but Josh Fields always had really good pitch data. Um, it just came with like real inconsistency in terms of command, but his raw pitch data was excellent. It was, you know, closer worthy pitch data. Um, so we did our usual thing at the time, which was, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Ludo, my boss at the time, told me to find a backfield guy, find a find a you know a guy that you know, they're probably not in on, find a backfield guy we like, and like they just signed Jordan Alvarez, who. I think we can trade for, because um, again, like, he hadn't, like you said, he hadn't even played a game yet, and they just signed Yoran Alvarez. Uh, let's just start there, and so here's the first great part of the story. You're gonna you're gonna laugh your ass off here. So um, Jeff is dealing with Farhan, who's at the Dodgers at the time, and Jeff texts Farhan, "What about Y period Alvarez?" <laughs> oh my God. And, I do kind of love that. And Farhan writes back, Yadier Alvarez is like a guy we gave $50 million to. They said, we're, not even, we're not even close on that. And Jeff, and Jeff tells me that, and I just laugh. I go, tell him you mean Jordan. <laughs> and, um, and so he asked for Jordan, and it doesn't take long. And they come back and say yes, which surprised me and, and thrilled me. Um, they come back and say yes. And then... So then the trade gets done, right? So the trade's done. We submit all of our paperwork. But Jordan has some sort of, I don't have, I don't remember the details, Eric. I'm sorry. But Jordan has some sort of visa thing going on, which is why he hasn't played yet, right? Right. And then it becomes, oh, shit. Can we actually trade for him? You know what I mean? Because, like, his visa's not complete yet. And then, like, I had to, like, we had to, like, talk to MLB. And they're like, yeah, you can trade for him. And you just have to assume the visa issue. And it turned into this whole big thing with the, with the deadline looming like the like the clock's ticking uh we finally figured out a way to make that trade work acquired Jordan. um as you know and as all our listeners know like when you make a trade for a prospect who let's just say is in the midwest league right um you've you've acquired john doe the second baseman at west michigan you have your person you, you know your your guy you're usually like you know someone who runs minor league operations call uh get in touch with the west michigan people and get in touch with the player and go hey welcome to the organization i'm here to arrange your travel right i'm here to take care of you we're going to get you you know we're going to get you to our low a affiliate let's figure this out we'll help you out um there's apps and it's all like a well-known process there's really no process if the kid is at the dominican is in the dominican right and so uh the trade gets made and Jordan already knew uh, and had a relationship with the scout uh, for the Astros who handled all the Cuban stuff. who's just absolutely remarkable. Um, and Jordan called him very upset and said, I don't know what to do. I'm outside the Dodgers complex with my bag packed and I'm not sure what to, ha- what, uh, what, what to do. And, and like he was upset and worried and like, oh, shit, we, we got yes, hold on. And like we had to get on the call with um, 
the Astros employ uh, a couple of brothers and another guy to be drivers down there. Most teams have this. Like we're not, you're literally not allowed to drive down there if you are a gringo. It's a, the travel insurance doesn't cover it, and every team employs drivers who have vans who can truck scouts around. So we'd like get in touch with those drivers and go go over to the Dodgers complex and go pick up Jordan and take him to our place because um, there's no one knew what to do. Um, and so Jordan came to our place, and 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 the rest is history, I guess. But like it, it was pretty clear early on. Um, that he was probably even better than we thought. Um, just it just took a couple of workouts for you know people to start within the ashes to start calling us and going like, "What is this? Where did you get this? I don't know. This is incredible." Um, and it, it was it just kind of felt clear from the first time we started playing games that this guy was going to be a bit of a beast at the plate. Um, he he's well, he's he obviously enormous. <laughs> Like he's, I mean, you see him, he's a huge dude, um, yeah. but he actually can hit, which is the scary part of Jordan. Like the power is unbelievable, but like he actually can hit. Yeah. For um, him to, to, he was kind of late on, you know, 95, mostly down the middle yesterday and still found a way to hit the sweet spot and, you know, just sent a laser beam into the monster the opposite way. Like just not normal stuff. Right, he he's he's one of those guys. There's not a lot of, he can miss hit a ball over the fence. Yep, you know, and and um, he's got his solid approach. There's like there's actual bat control there. It's, I mean, I think he's going to be a 900 plus ops guy. I'm going to say ops 900 plus ops, um, forever as long as he wants to be. Um, the knees have been creaky since day one. Um, right. I, I know he's played a little bit of left. I and, and it's a shame because actually, um, like coming up, he was he was a plus runner. Literally, plus runner. Um, that's not going to be the case anymore. Um, I'm, I, I think he should just be a DH from here on, but I think he's like a guy who will hit fourth for a major league team for a decade or more. Yeah. Um, he. I underranked him. The fact that he's been a three to four win DH basically mm-hmm. uh, during his two full seasons is amazing. Like, you know, think of some of the career starts that Pete Alonso and Reese Hoskins had as like relatively similar. If we're you know bucketing guys on yeah a prospect list, it's like yeah, these are all Ryan Mountcastle. Like these guys have huge performance, uh, but almost no defensive value. It is really hard to be a superstar without doing something on that side of the ball, and like this guy is just doing it. Um, and so yeah, like the the fact that he is so big and has had the lower body issues already and he's only 24 like maybe yeah. there will be some sort of early decline phase here which is what i bet on when yeah he could age he, he could ranked. age quick yeah but uh but he's unbelievable to watch right now and like the lineup top to bottom is incredible here's another hypothetical uh cuban question how good would yuli guriel have been if he had just had a career over here like, um, hall of fame level career probably I don't even. I, I, it's funny because I. I don't even want to say probably. I, I say absolutely. Um, it's 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 funny because I was you know had the the end of the, the 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 game yesterday with the the Red Sox and the Astros on um, yesterday, and my wife said like it's weird to watch this, and you know she's mad at the team. I still have some you know feelings as well, but like to see some of these guys smiling, and I said. And I said, you know, watching Julius kind of makes me sad, mostly because he didn't get here till he was 34. And, um, like, I don't think, like, a lot of people just don't remember, like, when this guy 
was playing like in world classics and other like international tournaments and stuff in his early 20s there were there were people saying this is the best player in baseball period um i think he would have been a a transformative superstar i think he would have had multiple mvps i think he would have been uh, you know in in being talked about as one of the best players of all time and and no question hall of famer and like just i'll just throw shit out there i think you would have been talking about a guy who hit you'd be you would expect like 330 with 25 every year at at shortstop you know and while playing like a 50 shortstop um you know through his 20s i still think he could be you know it's just you know, AJ put him at first base because that's like the only place that was available. Um, I think he could have played a perfectly fine third base when he, if if, if the spot was open. Um, you know, even now, and he's a great defensive first baseman. But um, I think he would have been a historically great player. We still need the the you know plus plus or better Cuban baseball documentary. I don't know of one that exists. Yeah, and um, and it's funny because like it's it's you know it's. Yuli also like helped the Astros sign so many Cuban players because like you, you'd have Yuli call them and it was like getting a call from Jesus Christ, um, and they would just lose their mind and and it's it's always funny to watch and um, and you know next time you're watching Guriel hit uh, on TV, um, just note how he sets up and he's like probably the most coiled hitter in baseball, and you can see uh, when you watch the television you can read the entire last name on the jersey um, and see both numbers. And start watching all the Cuban players, and they all do it. They're all super, super coiled. Their their whole back is to the pitcher. You can read the entire name, see both numbers, and I always called it like a Cuban swing. Really, it's a Guriel swing. And then they're all, every one of them is just kind of aping Yuli. Um, yeah, and you'll see like some of the dudes who have no chance of hitting right. adopt a similar style. Like Lazarito just has a similar, like his his swing works in a similar way. It just doesn't work though. Right, and that's the thing. It's such a funny thing because um, the way Yuli hits is very much uh, an anthema to the way the Astros teach hitting. But it was Yuli, so what do you, you're not going to ask Yuli to change. Right. It's Yuli, right? Um, you would never teach anyone that. It just it's what he does. Last um, thing on your guys specifically, uh, like the guys you signed, Verducci. Speaking of well quaffed, uh, mm-hmm. mentioned on the pot on the pod on the broadcast, uh, older pitching. Yeah. Explain that. You know, it's just it's such a thing where uh, the Astros had a lot of success signing, uh, quote unquote, older pitchers. Uh, Framber was like the oldest; he was twenty one. Um, but you know, Enoli was eighteen. I think Christian Javier was nineteen or twenty. Um, and it's such a weird world out there. And, and it was more of just a reaction to the market. The market is ridiculous with players Dominican. Where if you get um, the term is passed up, if you're not signed at sixteen. All of a sudden, you are seen as old, and the um, the attrition on what those players cost is is galling at times, right? Mm-hmm. And so, at the same time, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but like these are 15, 16 year old Dominicans. Um, many of them are coming from abject poverty. Many of them are malnutritioned. Um, most of them are not physically mature yet. And, and a lot of them, especially the pitchers, change dramatically from 16 to 18 or 19. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you're seeing these kids at 18 or 19 who, if he was at LSU, you'd be putting 400000 on him and talking about the third or fourth round, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and it's, it's fifteen grand. And it got to the point where, like, you know, 
especially the way the Astros were doing things at the time, which is a thing I always really uh, appreciate and agreed with. Ozzy Campos now with the Pirates uh, was kind of the originator of this, was uh, almost ignoring stuff. And it was just kind of going off of athleticism and delivery. Um, he's bounced around. He's with, he got traded um, with Toronto and the Reds, uh, but Hector Perez, the reliever. Yeah. Um, Hector Perez could like throw 98 and had a slider, just like 35 command of it. But, you know, one spring training when the Astros did all their um, almost like NFL draft camp level athletic measurements, Hector Perez ranked literally with any toolsy shortstop on the team. You know, and it, it's it was it was kind of focusing on those kind of things. You know, Anoli Paredes is, is very small, but he's an insane athlete. Um, it, was, it was focusing on that and these older guys and like sign 13 of them for $200,000. And you just need one to work out and you've done great, right? Yep. Um, and they had a few more than a few work out and, and make it to the big leagues. All right. So anything specific you want to talk about regarding – the Bo Sox. What about Devers' shoulder slash arm? I don't know. Like, I, he keeps saying it's busted, then he keeps whacking balls, right? I know. Like, clearly he's in visible pain slash discomfort. Clearly. <laughs> and he keeps hitting balls really hard. He's yeah, I, I love Rafael Devers, and it's, it's, he's really good. Um, I think he's a fantastic player. He's also, um, while hurt, like playing very good defense this series, and uh, you don't really think of him as a defensive player. I think he's gotten better, not to the point where I like I put a plus on him, but I I think he's fine there. Uh, Evaldi too is like when I wrote the wild card preview and really had to dig into Evaldi's season. I was just like, why doesn't this guy get mentioned as an AL Cy candidate? Really Maybe good, he yeah. does, but yeah. like he just belongs in that conversation at least. So he's going in Game Six for Boston versus. Uh, Luis Garcia. Um, right, who, who came out of his last start with a, a bit of a knee thing. Um, yeah, we'll see. I just, you know, I just, it's it's funny because, and, and we'll transition to the Dodgers-Braves series in a second here, but, like, I I have had the game story responsibilities for each of the last two, so games three and four, the Dodgers-Braves. And for both of those games, it happened in game three, it did not happen in game four, because the Dodgers lineup is so damn good, you kind of keep waiting for them to, like, put up a five spot. Um, and he, no matter what the score is, like there's always this threat of, of them just exploding all of a sudden. And it's the same with the Astros, and only the Astros have exploded way more than the Dodgers. And not having Max Muncy is, is a part of that, and now Justin Turner, who's been compromised and now he's, is probably just done. He's out for the postseason, yeah. Um, that's impactful. Trey Turner hasn't been quite as hot. No, none um, of the top three have been like Bet Seeger and Turner or, and Trey have all you know hitting one two three. It's like a it's like the best fantasy lineup in baseball, and they just kind of haven't really done it consistently. Not having uh, Edwin Rios around too, I think, is meaningful. For sure, yeah, constant trade target by the Astros. Um, love Edwin Rios. Um, so, but uh, let's get into the Dodgers and the Braves a little bit, just in the sense that you know the story of this has been the pitcher usage and. Um, in the first three games of the series, he had to he had to cool it out yesterday because he has a pen game tonight. Uh, but in the first three games of the series, Dave Roberts made 21 pitching changes. Um, he made uh, 6-1 game, 7-1 game, and 8 in another. And uh, caught a lot of flack for it, understandably so. Um, in game three, at one point, he used five pitchers to get seven outs. And I, 
you know, we saw what happened in the final game against the Giants, where all of a sudden he went with uh, a, a, a core Canable started the game and it became like a bit of a pen pen length pen pen game. And, you know, the problem with this is, is if it doesn't work, you, you gas everybody, which is, I think where he's at going into tonight. But I think part of the strategy itself revolved around what, what we just talked about in the sense that it revolved around the fact that, but with this offense, we're going to score six, seven runs, right? And when they score two, it looks like a disaster. Um, and so it's, 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 I don't know where they go from. They're down three to one and they have a pen game. If they can get through the pen game, which they might, because who knows, like the Dodgers might score 11 tonight. I don't know. Um, but if they get through the pen game, then they, they, it goes back to Bueller and Scherzer, which is obviously a more normal world. Um, like, what do you think about? Uh, and it's been a story, not just in this series, but throughout the post of just kind of pitcher usages here. I think a lot of it is, you know, people are bitching about analytics, but I think a lot of this is just a function of 2020 and players are absolutely gassed and more gassed than they nor- normally be in a, a quote unquote normal season. I think that's a viable uh, like explanation and probably something that's factoring in. I also think that like having the starters come in and basically have their bullpen day right. in the game when that's one of your five or six best guys and everyone on the team knows it, like I think that's fine. Um, even if you're kind of dipping your toes in it, maybe there's a lower stakes way to dip your toes in it before the playoffs start so you're not experimenting with Max yeah. Scherzer's dead arm in the playoffs. Or bringing Julio Urias for an inning that might not be necessary and then having him be less effective like we saw last night. Right. Um, so I think that we've seen with individual players over the course of even just our own personal experience, like CC Sabathia going on short rest for like the last three weeks of the year with Milwaukee and it not mattering. Like he just single-handedly carries them into the playoffs. Maybe some people can do it and you just don't know until yes yeah, so you try I, uh, my 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 long-held theory has always been that like we could talk about pitch pitch counts and inning counts till the cows come home and they really do matter but that at, at any time there are five to eight pitchers in major league baseball where it just doesn't matter and they're going to be fine no matter what um sabathia was definitely on that list i think for a time verlander was on that list Yep. Um, where it just doesn't matter. They're fine. You can do it all day with them. It's not going to affect them. But I think, you know, I'm talking about, again, five to eight guys in a world of 400. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that many. <laughs> but, so, uh, yeah, I mean, here's something I've been thinking about, though. You know, so the Dodgers won 107 games. They're down three to one in the series. Um, their chances of winning the series are there, but they're small. Um, Dave Roberts taking a lot of heat for the way he's managed in the postseason. If they do lose this series, do you think David Roberts has any sort of hotness to his seat? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so, but it's, it's been mentioned. I went, nah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm certainly my gut reaction to it is not to do anything like that, that you've had, unless there's something going on internally uh, with strife that we don't know about, which I suppose is possible. But, and then even I think uh, a coaches in any sport, their relationship with the clubhouse can become, stale over time um i think that clubhouse still likes roberts a lot yeah i think so too and i think that we tend to underrate consistency yes uh and um just like the value of maintaining the status quo uh in some sports 
there's a measurable level of importance to it. Like in football, the offensive line performance is greatly impacted by like how long that group of guys has played together. Like, oh, really? Yes, there is statistical year-over-year impact when like the stability. same group has been together. Because so much of it is about like feeling one another and kind of uh, like being able to protect. Kind of picking up someone loses a guy and kind of stuff like right. that. Okay. Um, so I, I just think that there's value in like consistency and, and stability. Uh, and that, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about moving off of Dave Roberts in, in a situation like this. Um, I don't know. I don't think their team is built in, in like a flawed way. I think they're, they're dealing with injuries that have hurt the quality of the offense, like the depth, especially with, with no Muncie. And then that seems to be the thing that is having an impact on what they're doing. And they also like, you know, Gavin Lux in center field, stuff like that. Like yeah, there are, there's weird stuff happening here. That, that is atypical. totally weird. I don't understand that. They have, they have gold glove outfielders and they're playing Gavin Lux. I understand you want to get his Mookie bat in the just lineup, be better there. Of course he would be. And I know he clanked the ball yesterday, but that happens. No one feels a thousand, but like, I mean, Gavin Lux played, you know, played a, 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 a deep fly ball into a double. He, he, had a horrible read on a ball that came that was in front of him that I, I think a good center fielder has a much better chance of catching that just kind of fell in front of him for a single. Um, I, he's bad there. And, this I, is and a, I, it's not his fault, but he's bad there. A general thought that I had that I, I'll run past you. Okay, so true or false, uh, teams in the, in the postseason probably have pitchers who are going to be throwing harder in general and also amped up because it's the playoffs. I think generally true, but not as true this year because they're gassed. Does the fact that like, and also we see more contact oriented teams that strike out less, put the ball and play more tend to be in the postseason as well. Correct. All right. Does the shift become, is it more likely that balls in play deviate from the hitters norms because everyone is so amped stuff is better. Like, is hiding wow. Gavin Lux defensively, does it become a riskier proposition in the playoffs because the style of play has meaningfully changed? That's a fun question. I don't know, but I'm fascinated by it and would want to look into it. That's I don't, what I thought. Yeah, that's a really good question. I do think I, – I, I, I feel very strongly about defense, and defense is obviously very important. I, and I've, always, I, I've always been fine. If you want to hide a bat and a below-average defender at a corner, I'm fine with it. If you want to do it up the middle, I think it's a disastrous decision. The most emotionally invested I've ever been in a baseball team is those Phillies teams uh, approaching their World Series win. Mm-hmm. And there was something about like having Rollins and Utley and Victorino up the middle. For sure. There was just something about like Victorino you knew was just going to run everything he possibly could down. Like, I don't know. There's just something about that vibe in the tension of the playoffs that I feel is meaningful or was meaningful to me at that time, at least for my level of stress. Yeah. And I was talking to, to um, somebody with a team uh, last week about the shortstop free agent class um, and, you know, and, and kind of the Seeger versus Correa who will get more. And, and I just said, have you watched them play defense in the last two weeks? And he said, yeah. Right. And I said, that's why Correa is going to get more. I think that's um, been, yeah, that's a big part of it too. And then Trevor Story's had issues throwing. That will be yeah. meaningful in terms of the way he's, uh, you know, paid. Uh, all right. How about the Braves patching together? Uh, also, like, you know, Eddie Rosario, scrap heap guy. And then they had to Unbelievable. Yeah. Voltron together a platoon outfield after Acuna went down. 
Right. And it, it, I, I mean, obviously, Rosario has been one of the stories of the playoffs. Um, he had, what, 12 total bases last night? And uh, two two bombs and a triple. He's hitting almost 500. Um, that trade was for just money. That was it. They yep. said they sent they sent Pablo Sandoval to the Indians, who immediately DFA'd him, um, and picked up. I think just even a portion. I think I think even the Indians picked up a, a chunk of what was left. Rosario was non-tendered in the offseason. Right. He was on the scrap heap. The Indians got him. He wasn't very good. The Braves did make a change to him. Did they did make a mechanical change? Um, he's, he remained the aggressive hitter he's always been. His contact rate was was, was similar. Um, they did unlock some pop. Um, he hit balls much harder with the Braves and and and, and to to bully on Atlanta. They did a good job with him. Um, and yeah, but I, it's it's you know getting him and and obviously they lost Solaire for the postseason. Oh, I think he might come back, but they lost Solaire so far for the postseason because of a, a COVID test. And to be here without Acuna is kind of remarkable, and to be a win away from the World Series, I think, is is kind of remarkable. And it was it's been a real contrast in styles managerially, just in the fact that Snitker has been, I think, a lot more patient and calm with his pitching staff, if you will, than than Roberts. Um, to his detriment in Game Three, where he, I think, you know, he left Luke Jackson way too long. Uh, but it's very much this kind of, you know, we're going to get this far, and then it's you know, Matzik in the seventh, Jackson in the eighth, Smith in the ninth. Um, you know, some sort of Minter Martin work. If I need, if I need to get outs before I get to the to the last three, um, it's very much kind of a wrote by the book thing that he's comfortable with and is stuck stuck to, um, for the most part, quite effectively. Yeah, uh, all the left-handed pitching in their bullpen, like it's just so much between Smith and and Matzik and I mean, Smiley threw 57 pitches and threw like two-thirds curveballs or something like that to yeah, like give them length. Curve balls. I did, I, Drew, Drew Smiley getting them you know, 10 outs in a bullpen game, 40% of the outs in a bullpen Huge. game. Like That was the player of the game, I thought. Jesse Chavez has been dry-humped early in games. <laughs> he, he, and started warming, well he started warming up in the second inning of game three. Yep. In the second and came in in the eighth. Um, yep. And Jesse's kind of the relief version what we talked about earlier. He's a guy who I, you could just pitch him every day and he'd be fine. Zero so, problems with it. Who, um, I don't know, I think Atlanta's very good. I feel as though collectively we've maybe underrated them. Um, mm-hmm. Anderson, I still don't know. Like, Ian Anderson's stuff does seem suppressed to me in a way that is concerning. Losing Huescar and Noah um, is, you know, that's a, a guy with two premium pitches who is just going to be some sort of viable weapon. He's one of the best 12 or 13 guys in the org in terms of pitching. Um, so there is something about the the starters here that feels thin, but the fact that Freed and Morton, like the fact that the Braves have two guys who could give you, would you be surprised if you looked up and they had thrown six quality innings at the end of one of these games? No, and, and, no, and other teams really that have two of those guys right now. Right, and the Dodgers have to win obviously three in a row, but two of those three games are going to be Freed and Morton. Freed goes yep. tonight. Um, Tenuous. Let's talk, let's talk about front office stuff for a little bit. Okay. Uh, start with the Mets. Um, the New York Mets are searching for a new top person. Um, and all of the the story has been revolving around um, big headline names. Theo Epstein, Billy Bean, David Stearns. Um, Theo Epstein had a talk with the Mets and said, nah. Billy Bean had a talk with the Mets and said, I, not what I want to do. Um, the Brewers declined uh, the permission request to talk to David Stearns because it was a lateral move. 
And so all of a sudden they lost this and everyone's acting like this is now a disaster for the Mets. And I don't see it that way. I think it was fine that they started by swinging for the fences, if you will. Um, and now they need to do something different. And the thing that strikes me is just that there's still a lot of really good candidates out there. They're just not going to generate a, a super clever headline on the back page of the tabloids. You know what I mean? And like when the Brewers hired David Stearns, he had been an AGM for two years for a team that lost 100 games. Um, you know, when Theo Epstein got his first GM job, he was this young guy and it was like, I can't believe this guy's got this job. What the hell's going on? Uh, Billy Bean was this player who'd only been off the field for a couple of years. Like none of these guys were big names when they got the job. And so I, it, the Mets, I think, have to change their strategy from like, we're going to get the big name to we're going to find the next big name. And I think they're, I think they're, look, they might fuck this up. Totally. They have already a couple of times. Um, but. Like there's still plenty of people. I, I this, if they can find the next great GM as opposed to finding the one right now, I think they'll be fine. And I think that's what I think that's where the way they should be going. They I, actually don't. They don't have a choice but to go that way at this point. I agree with you, and also think that it is a big red flag that people don't want to work for Steve Cohen. That they sense volatility, and uh, like I don't know. I just wouldn't want my boss. Could you imagine if? Uh, Appleman tweeted, guess we don't care about typos today <laughs> at the site. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't want, I would not appreciate that. So, I don't know what kind of blank check I would need to work for this cat, Cohen. But um, I'd be less likely to do it. And I think that that's true of most folks in baseball that this is a situation you're walking into that feels like the Jets have, you know, infected this organization somehow and like where it does feel like, you know, you're the ghost in Mr. Chicken and here's this is the house that you're going into. Right? <laughs> so I don't know. I think that that vibe exists in a way that is inextricable from this situation and that's not great. Um, but at, at the, the same, same time, time you it's have, a, it's, it's a GM job. It's going to pay very right. well. And there's plenty of right. people who want it. Right. But the types of people who are going to want it are the people who, when yeah, it boils down to it, yeah. that's what they're thinking about. Mm -hmm. And so good luck with that. I also think that, you know, how, how would you characterize the following statement? There's something happening where there's like almost a symbiotic relationship between front office folks who's priority numero uno is their own job security rather than winning. And the owners are cool with that because their priority is being profitable. So I can give you this semi-competitive 80 win team on a budget. Once in a while, we'll get lucky with the right, you know, we'll trust our processes in a way that round up on that. And we're sort of in the mix in a way that is cost effective for you the the gate is is doing well because we're semi competitive. I get to keep my job, and you know play. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not sure that that this particular job is suited for an individual like that because it doesn't seem like the owner no. is in that realm where that's what he wants. This guy is gonna throw money at. I still have people at the field who I'm talking to who call it you know Dodgers East in terms of spending, and that is very attractive. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you can make moves, and you know, if you've been with a team that has been had financial constraints, you've been with a team that has not had nearly as many. It's 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 a huge difference. 
it means a lot. Um, and I, I, I do think Huge. plenty of people will want that job. Yep. Plenty of people. Um, speaking of jobs that got filled, uh, the Cubs named Carter Hawkins their new general manager. Um, and I kind of... I got an excellent email that allows us to kind of like delve into this. And so we're going to do one email early here. This email comes from Matt and Matt says, Hey, Kevin and co-host to be named later. My nephew just texted me and asked me what I knew about the Cubs new GM, Carter Hawkins. I said, not much. He replied, I hope he's good. My thought in this text exchange is I'm not sure how much it matters that Carter Hawkins is a good GM. Won't Jed Hoyer have the final call? It's like having a good vice president. I couldn't tell you who a team's GM is anymore because the power seems to come from the top. These days, it seems more and more that the president of baseball ops handles the majority of baseball ops decisions. There are so many big-name personalities that hold president of baseball operations. From your personal knowledge, do all decisions go through the president? How much power do GMs have on a team? Is it roster construction, trades, who gets promoted, and team policy? Um, Welcome to the wonderful world of titles in baseball front offices, Matt. So uh, Carter Hawkins comes from the Indians uh, with a excellent reputation um, in the player development sphere, particularly pitching. Carter Hawkins is likely going to be handed the player development area for the Chicago Cubs. Um, I'm sure he will have input on major league stuff, but it's still going to be Jets call. All that's going to be Jets call. If you're going to call the Cubs about trade, you're going to call Jet. If you're an agent with a free agent, you're going to be dealing with Jet. Um, and that's where we are at this point with this you know, new world that's built up really over the kind of past five to eight years where the GM is not necessarily num- you know, numero uno because you have these presence of baseball titles. Um, and if you really want to bring Carter Hawkins in to transform your player development world, which is something the Cubs needed, you, you have to give him the high title to even get the the permission granted and to get the ability to bring him over. And so you give him the title and the money. Um, But I think Carter Hawkins focus is going to be on player development as opposed to kind of running the big league stuff that the fans pay more attention to. And that's just how it works. There are some GMs who are the number one person and that's who you're dealing with on, 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 and they're making the final decisions on big league roster stuff. Um, And sometimes the GM is really someone who's advising the president on those kind of things. Yep. Um, This makes a ton of sense in terms of like, what have we failed at over the last five years as the Cubs and who has been the best at that? And can we draw from them to do that? Like totally hundred percent on the nose. Cleveland is as good as anyone at developing pitchers. Now I would also say it is very likely that Cleveland's player acquisition processes are operating with their type of development in mind, like the they drafted Doug Nikhazy and Shane Bieber and guys who have like a foundation of skills that doesn't necessarily include premium velocity. Mm-hmm. And they uh, optimize the pitch mix that already has like good traits. And these guys have field to, to pitch and use their stuff where it matters to use. Uh, and then apply good development to like coax more velo out of those guys. And even just being on Cleveland's backfields. Uh, so they're really good at it. They're like Trenton Denholm. I have seen Trenton Denholm touch 96 a bunch of times. Right. What was he throwing throwing as an amateur? Like 88 to to 91 maybe. And that was just a couple months ago. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, Doug Nikhazy, I've seen touch 95. Wow. He was 88 to 91 a couple months ago. So now, you know, the context of the look is important, but like, 
Cleveland has a this is a core competency for them. And right. Carter Hawkins has been at the forefront of, of that stuff for a while now. So I it was long enough ago that when I interviewed with Cleveland many moons ago, uh, at the winter meetings and then like, you know, I ran the gauntlet of interviews, which was several hours over the course of two days. One of them was with Carter. I think that one was over the phone. Um, and I haven't spoken with him since then, which is smart by me. Good job cultivating sources in the industry, Eric. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the Moncada sale trade was made that day. And I was like, look, I got to stop interviewing. I got to, you know, race Jim Callis to writing about this. And that's when they were just like, oh, we know what it is you really want to do then. Um, but, uh, but anyway, like they're really great at this and the Cubs have not been. The Cubs had a bunch of guys who came to spring training throwing much, much harder than they were last year. And it looked as though they had turned a corner uh, mm-hmm. in terms of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then a bunch of them got hurt too. Right. Um, but him sitting in the GM chair, I think, gives them a better shot of synergizing the player acquisition stuff with the dev piece right? because I think it is a certain type of player that they will now want to be targeting in the acquisition spot. Yeah, for sure. And every team, it's a good, that's a great point because every team has things that they like about players, right? Um, And I can think about the things, you know, for the team I worked with liked about players and you would look for those attributes, be it amateur, uh, be it the rule five or be it big league stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like those are the attributes that appealed to you as a team. Those are the things you liked, you know, it, you know, it vertical fastballs with hop, um, you know, either downer or sweeper breakers, uh, you know, uh, guys who could contact and good swing decisions, you know, shallow and, vertical approach angle with slider two seam movement divergence, you know? And so like it's every team highest. has, the, every team has their thing, <laughs> right? They have their thing. And, and, you know, the thing that, that, that Hawkins, like you said, was at the forefront of identifying for Cleveland, they're going to be looking for those things in the draft, but they're also going to be looking for those things in the big league, at the big league level in terms of free agents and trade targets. And so um, he's going to certainly help the Cubs develop their thing, if you will. This is their, this is what the Cubs like. This is what the Cubs look for. Um, and so, but the decisions themselves, the, the pulling the trigger, if you will, is going to be Hoyer. Um, and that's it's just a, a it's just a weird dynamic we've, we've reached now with the the GM and the president and you know I I've talked to some people about this and I've always wondered about this because we we did talk earlier about um, the the Brewers turning down the Mets um, when I talked to David Stearns it was a lateral move because he he's the president of baseball in Milwaukee and I've always wondered if there's like because they're going to keep pushing this envelope. Like if there's a way to push the envelope even further, if, is there a way you could argue that, well, we're going to give him a piece of the team and put him on the board. So it's a promotion, even if you're a president, like what's the next step? Like where, where, how far does this go? Sorry. The leaf blower outside my door is, it's just a leaf blower. It's fine. I know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, the front office stuff is, Weird. Weird. Um, <laughs> but the it's only been a short time since the title jockeying has really begun and how to sort of position and promote your own people from within mm-hmm. so that you don't lose them. Um, and that's, you know, and you look at like, go look at whatever your favorite team's front office pages on, at, at their team site. Like the Tampa Bay Rays have no GM and I think no AGM right now. And, you know, one of the names mentioned as a Mets candidate is Peter Bendix. There's a chance that, you know, they ask from Peter Bendix and the Rays just say, fuck it. And they make him a GM so they can keep him. Yep. Yeah. And um, they kind of hold these titles for just such an occasion. 
it I'm is not gonna, so. I'm not going to promote them now and wait till someone asks and I'm forced to. It is so uh, intricate, and there are way more jobs in this industry than I think people realize. Like I was talking to someone on a backfield last week who like taught Spanish in Mexico on a Fulbright scholarship for several years, and now works in player development in a serious way. Like is multilingual. And had no, like, didn't grow up loving baseball. Doesn't come from mm-hmm. baseball in any original way. That's not like the source of their uh, arrival in the industry. It wasn't a thing that they wanted to do or anticipated that they were they were going to do. But there's something about like the process of it that they fell in love with that has nothing to do with the way most of us started to like baseball. Right. Um, and so, yeah, like. Those types of folks are going to bubble up through orgs, and I think teams' hiring processes over the last couple of years have changed. We will probably, as those folks trickle up through the orgs, what the RGM candidates look like or what the resumes look like might start to shift over the next couple of years away from what it's become. Uh, But yeah, I still think ultimately it's like with players. If you think someone's having a meaningful impact on your front office and you can kind of create uh, like roster room, like on a ladder right. to retain certain people uh, or even just have a space where you can promote someone um, and maybe give them more responsibility, but just retain the same sort of impact that they're having on your organization. Uh, like you should probably be trying to do that. Yeah. It's one of those like intricate behind the curtains things that um, I think a lot of folks don't realize is happening. Yeah, the permission system gets a lot of people raises and promotions. Yep. Um, let's get away from the big leagues for a second here, Eric. Uh, you are in Arizona. The Arizona Fall League has begun. Um, it is, relative to some recent years, a really good year in terms of here's the prospects who are playing in the Arizona Fall League. Um, there are some loaded rosters. Yep. Uh, you've been running around. Uh, who are the players that have really caught your eye? I would say the general overview is that the pitching in the league is not good. That is true in a typical year. That's every year, yeah. Um, That the makeup of most pitching staffs is one or two very good guys and then a bunch of guys who I could see playing some sort of big league role and then a handful of maybes. Right, Um, and one or or two really good guys throwing three innings a week. Right, yep. Um, So... Then the hitting, yeah, the hitting in the league is unbelievable. Like if you look at like Glendale's roster, almost every single position player on that roster you could see having viable big league utility of some kind. Even if it's like Juan Yepes with the Cardinals yeah, just being like a righty power goof off the bench or like a pre-arb first baseman or something like that. So uh, it is very deep. Um, Lars Newtbar with the Cardinals showed up here looking like he had just been in a playoff race, (laughs) you know, and was suddenly facing pitching that is, that is more the equivalent of like in that high a double a range, like went from seeing big league playoff chase pitching to crushing dudes during the first week of play here, ambushing a bunch of like 93 mile an hour first or second pitch get me over fastballs and just parking them 390 feet away. Um, Jose Rodriguez with the White Sox has 
he's swinging with much more explosion now mm-hmm. than when I first saw him in uh, the complex league several years ago. Um, so there's other stuff there that is maybe kind of spooky, like he swings an awful lot. But in terms of he him being a middle infielder with like power, um, that seems on the table now. So that's been pretty interesting. Um, then like the Peoria group is not quite as good. Uh, I have not seen Nick Gonzalez yet. I have not seen CJ Abrams yet, but I have seen like Jihuan Bay, Eggy Rosario, Bryson Stott. Um, these are all infielders who, you know, Bryson Stott's got a shot to be an everyday guy. I guess yeah. it's, he's not sticking out like a sore thumb away from everybody else. Um, but he's, he's been pretty good. Uh, it's, it's important to note, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, and I got some questions in my chat on Monday. Like, are you really excited about player X? He's, he's off to a great start in Arizona. The Arizona fall is a great time to get a scouting look at a player. Um, it's a great time to see a lot of really good players in one spot. Don't look at the numbers. The numbers are absolutely meaningless. Yeah. A lot of it's because of what Eric just talked about with the, 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 difference between the level of, of hitting versus the level of pitching um you know the 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 afl record books are littered with guys who did not have big league careers or good ones um it's it's a great scouting look it is a really bad uh scout the stat sheet look it's, yes. it's, it's a real dangerous place for that because of the asymmetry between the talent of the pitchers and the hitters because of the elevation of you know here in the valley, it's we're just the second highest elevation in the big leagues is Chase Field, um, and so the ball really flies here, especially as the air really dries out after mm-hmm. the monsoon. Um, but yeah, the and we talked about you know we had some of the greatest hits names before the pod you know Tag Bozide, Tag Bozide, Dustin Ackley, like Ken Hart, they come Scott all Pose. shapes and sizes. Yep. <laughs> um, the Scottsdale rosters also got some fascinating guys and dynamics. Um, in rounding up the 40-man crunch situations for some of the teams, Cleveland is definitely on the list of teams that probably still has to make a consolidation trade between now and the 40-man deadline. And so two of their guys who are in that mix are in Fall League. One of them is Jose Tena who is one of the youngest guys in the fall league. He's an 01 birthday middle infielder who has like a a long track record of hitting. Um, And the other is Richie Palacios, who went to a small school. He went to Towson, crushed at Towson. Shortstop. Shortstop at Towson, but relatively positionless, actually. Mm -hmm. Like really can't play the infield, cannot throw the ball accurately to first base. He's playing the outfield here in fall league. Um, Cleveland obviously has had trouble finding internal candidates to be those platoon outfielders that they like to to try to develop and use. Um, both he and Tana ha- have to like, and Palacios missed a bunch of years with injury and is like very old for the level, but he performed this year. Um, so those two guys are going to be interesting to watch all fall. I anticipate that Palacios will definitely be added to the 40 man. I don't know. I bet you that they... Tana will be really interesting for someone who has 40 man space because right. he's so young. And, um, you know, and for teams in this position, there's, and the Indians are not the only one, uh, what you'll probably see them do, and let's just not even talk about the CBA complication, which you'll probably see them do oh, before yeah. the roster freeze, um, is 
like start to consolidate through trades and 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 it's an interesting world um basically teams start sending out these emails to every team it's like you know we have the following players available to discuss uh, if you have interest let us know here's who to call um and it's you know basically a list of kind of you know they have like eight bubble guys and they have three spots they list all eight bubble guys and see you know see what happens see what the mar you know right they might have a guy they really want to keep, but if they you know get some right in return for him, they'll move someone else you know into the right side of the bubble. Um, and so, like teams will, will, they're not just going to say, "Well, we're keeping these three and we're popping these five off." They'll try to to do something a little more productive and maybe turn a player into someone that that has that is kind of pre roster eligible that they can you know have a little more time to to figure out what he can be. There, they're not timed out on these players yet. Um, some of the guys who have been who are also like interesting to watch uh, for the next six weeks are like Leo Jimenez with Toronto, who is one of these infielders who doesn't strike out. He had like a 500 OP OBP in 2021, uh-huh. but you know, he doesn't hit for any power. He might be one of these types of players who all of a sudden it's like, you know, at some point Jose Altuve was just this kind of looking guy on paper where there was a lot of contact and not a lot of power, and then he's listed at 5'8". Mm. And you're like, yeah, really? But, you know, sometimes these guys are Yanni Hernandez, and they turn into good utility infielders, and then sometimes there's actually an extra gear of game power there, and they become stars. Right. Um, Leo, Leo hit uh, 320, 523, 392 this year. Yep. <laughs> the, uh, old, uh, the old OBP, 130 points higher than your slug. So just to see him in this environment around a bunch of other guys who are unquestionable dudes um, is going to be fascinating. I watched him get on top of a 97-mile-an-hour fastball at the letters the other night. Um, Just like, you know, put it in play well. I don't even know what happened, but it was Mm. just impressive that he did that. Um, The uh, Jeter Downs with Boston after the year he had will be interesting to watch. He was in almost... You know, he was on the doorstep of the big leagues basically and flopped. And now this pitching that he's seeing is a downgrade. So he's off to a hot start, but it's going to be more about how he looks against good arms, in my opinion, here rather than um, just like how he performs on paper uh, for the reasons you mentioned. Then you have the outfielders from um, the 2019, yeah, the 2019 draft outfielders. So mm-hmm. JJ Blade. Cameron Meissner. I guess you could throw Kyle Stowers into this. Has group. JJ Bleday done anything for you? Because it feels like he hasn't done anything for anyone since he signed. That is how I would characterize it. Yes. Okay. That, <laughs> um, you know, this was a top five pick out of Vanderbilt, a guy who crushed on the Cape, who only really had a short window of big college performance because of injuries during his sophomore year, if I'm remembering. But he, that. he led, I mean, he led the country in home runs that spring, didn't he? Then he read, right. Like, so. You know, with some of these guys, and Hunter Bishop is another folly example of this too, what are we seeing that is recency bias and what are we seeing that is actual skill development and progression? And with Blade and Bishop, it seems like the uptick they had in production as draft-eligible juniors was, was you know, a shorter – like that is the aberrant season for both of these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter Bishop also does not look good. Has a 20 arm. Um, you know, like just can't throw during infield and outfield. Um, so both of those guys and Meissner are sort of like, eh, this is kind of tenuous from a hit tool perspective. They can't really afford to have that happen. Matthew Walner with the twins 
is the guy who has the similar heuristic profile who just looks different in terms of like feel to hit and yeah, playable all, power. These are all big dudes. Yep. Yep. It's the, so the hit, the hitters here are loaded. Um, those first couple games I saw were, you know, there was no instructs activity in Florida. So the guys here from the orgs in Arizona had the, the opportunity to tune up with their instructs yeah, group. Up, right. And Lars Newbar was very tuned. And yeah, uh, the you know, so I'm giving some grace to the Florida hitters. So I mean, you've talked about all these really impressive position prospects. Have you seen any good pitching? Yeah, so like Owen White with Texas, he's interesting. Yeah, uh, Tommy John guy coming back um, was part of their high school class f- from a couple of years ago that included Cole Wynn. Um, he looks quite good. You know, it's mid 90s with a couple plus breaking balls and feel to pitch. Asa Lacy, his instructs tune up. Uh, one inning that I caught was bad, and then his two-inning Fall League debut was absolutely electric, where he was just sitting 96-97 with huge carry and a 70 slider. Um, he's but, still, that, but still walking dudes. Still walk some guys. He's just in that Rodon. Like, it's a strictly better Rodon, in my mm-hmm. opinion, where mm-hmm. his fastball has more end-zone utility and margin for error than Rodon's because of its shape. Um and but the slider is every bit as nasty, so it's just that not going to be a lot of strikes, not going to be very efficient, but primo lefty velocity with a yak like just a nasty slider. Right. Um, Cole Henry with Washington also like three pitches, mid nineties plus changeup plus breaking ball, really violent. Still think it's multi inning relief. Like there are guys, but even like Jordan Hicks, Jordan Hicks, eh, like he's sitting ninety six, but it's sinkery and it still get finds barrels. He's super duper cross body. His slider is just okay. Uh, you know, like he just looks okay. I saw um, Logan Gillespie with Baltimore. He's a converted outfielder. Um, is he converted outfielder or is he an indie ball sign? There's something about his background. Maybe I'm conflating him with Mitchell Stumpo. <laughs> but um, there's something about his background that is like, ooh, this guy's not. His trajectory here is atypical. Uh, and he was also like park 94 to 97 with you know distinct two distinctly shaped breaking balls and like strikes and looked pretty good coming out of the bullpen i haven't seen bobby miller yet uh zach thompson with the cardinals his curveball is gorgeous i don't know how much utility the other stuff really has Mm -hmm. uh again sinkery um which is fine on its own but maybe not with a guy who's got a rainbow curveball like if you want to work down in the zone with your sinker fastball that curveball that lollipops into the zone, as beautiful as it is, is pretty easy for big league hitters to see. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of an underrated thing, and, and and it's something that I've always, I think it's always been a challenge for teams, and still is a challenge for teams. It's just like we can kind of grade and measure pitches individually in a vacuum just by themselves, uh, but there is some sort of kind of interoperation, and and there's some sort of arsenal grade, if you will, and I, I think you know some pitches can be can become better or worse because of the other pitches the guy throws. And like uh, the driving variable. We, we ever done a great job measuring that. Okay. Yeah. Like it seems like it might be, there might be a visual component to it. Maybe mm-hmm. that's just what tunneling is meant to describe, but it also seems as though there is like there one time last year, I just download, I exported the uh, tables from the horizontal pitch movement leaderboard on the site here. Like just looking at uh, you know pitch info, lateral movement, and I just made another column that was the difference between 
fastball movement in one direction and slider movement in the other direction. And you can see like, oh, look at all these Rays and Brewers scrap heap guys. Mm. Like, ooh, look, Ryan Thompson and Josh Fleming and Justin Topa. Like you can kind of see that there are there's a group of teams who you would consider uh, progressive in terms of the way they seek to identify players are just on this list of sinker slider movement divergence. And so maybe that's part of it too. Mm-hmm. It's just funny that pitching is at one time quantifiable and easy to evaluate and also very difficult because guys can change in an instant and get hurt as well. Like it's easy to identify them, but also hard to keep them all around and have enough depth. Like I'm still not really sure what to do with pitchers. (laughs) (laughs) As are most. Um, We'll take a break. You'll listen to a track from Carolyn Wald City. We'll talk to Katie Wu of The Athletic on the big news out of St. Louis last week. We'll come back. We'll read your emails. We'll have Eric's story time. All sorts of good stuff. Stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. Our special guest just wrapped up her first year covering the St. Louis Cardinals for The Athletic and joining us from what I'm sure luxurious accommodation somewhere in Northern California. It's Katie Wu. Katie, how are you? I'm great. How are you? We are doing just fine. Uh, one week ago, uh, I was recording this very podcast, and as I was recording, the news broke that the St. Louis Cardinals were uh, separating themselves, to use the, the corporate term, from manager Mike Schilt. Uh, the first time I saw, I know it wasn't the person who broke the story, but the first thing I saw was a tweet from Jeff Passan. Um, Jeff Passan's kind of well-known and doesn't uh, take to tweeting out stories without thinking about it and being sure he's right. And even with Jeff Passan tweeting it, my first reaction was, I got to make sure this is right. I'm not going to say anything yet because uh, that's how shocked I was. Were you were you that shocked as well at the news? You know, when I first got a, a couple of uh, messages and calls letting me know, hey, this is what we think is going going on. I didn't believe it. And, you know, when I was able to get it confirmed, I no joke almost rear ended the car in front of me in the Starbucks <laughs> drive through. Because it just seemed so, so out of left field. I mean, Mike Schultz has, has has all the respect in that Cardinals clubhouse. Three consecutive postseason appearances in his three years as the full-time manager. There were talks that he was going to get an extension. I, You know, there were plenty of questions circling the Cardinals this offseason. I 100% did not expect who the who's going to be the new manager to be a question that we were going to have to answer. Um. First of all, what's your go-to Starbucks order? Well, it's, you know, it's fall, so I have to do something pumpkin. That's just kind of the law, right? You're one of those? Okay, I got it. I'm one of those. Well, thanks for coming on, Katie. Um, no, I, it, uh, so, you know, this was, the, the first question I had was, and it, it seemed like, you know, once it was over and the story had broken, that like there were some kind of, some sort of patterns in the sand we could read into. And the first thing that, that kind of struck me was that, you know, six days prior to the announcement of his firing, uh, he was in the meeting, in the postseason meeting with with himself and the coaching staff in the front office. Um, you know, those meetings are mostly forward looking. You know, here's what we're planning on doing this offseason. Here's the things we need to get going and stuff like that. Do you think that this decision like went over to, to get to, to, to get rid of Schilt? Do you think this decision came kind of quickly and even unexpectedly for them? I do think so. You know, there there is no such thing as a 100% happy marriage between the front office and the manager, right? There's a lot of differing opinions. But for the most part, up until this season, I think John Mozeliak and Mike Schultz were able to work pretty well in a tandem, right? Mike Schultz has been in the organization or has had been for 18 years. But it seems to me that while there was definitely, I think, some sort of controversy or maybe they weren't seen eye to eye on the roster construction, especially early on in the season when the Cardinals were just decimated by injury. Mike Schultz wasn't getting any help. He had to run out the same players every day that just weren't performing. And he's the one that ultimately has to answer to that to the media every day. That's when I think the frustration started boiling. Now, to, to Mo's credit, he did make the acquisitions necessary to boost the Cardinals into postseason contention, which was, of course, aided by a 17-game winning streak with Mike Schultz at the helm. But I think the the turmoil kind of started there when Schultz wasn't getting a lot of help early on in terms of the roster. 
Now, once they start winning, of course, that kind of changes the narrative. Like, okay, winning it really does solve most problems. But it seems to me that whatever happened on that end of season all staff meeting really escalated whatever tension there was between Schiltz and Mo, and ultimately it was something they couldn't really come back from. And, and you know, I th- the other thing that really kind of struck me was just that you know the whole staff, the whole big league staff, other than Mike Schilt is slated to return next year. So this really feels like it was kind of a, it's just him thing. Right. That's what I think is, I mean, there's plenty of things that have been so puzzling about this whole situation, right? I mean, I, I still, it's been over a week and I'm still kind of confused on how this all kind of shook out so quickly, but yeah, Mo does expect the majority or the, the rest of his 2021 coaching staff to return and even has said, you know, there's a couple of internal candidates to take over as the new manager, um, Jeff Albert, who has probably been the most controversial of the coaching staff, their hitting coach, who was hired more to be an, an offensive coordinator, if you will. Mm-hmm. than a traditional hitting coach. He's really kind of embraced the analytics and, and data side of offense and tried to implement that, not just in the big league with the big league team, but throughout the entire organization. We've seen the minor leagues have some really improved offensive production, but the the offensive production at the major league level has been very slow to turn around. He's expected to come back. Uh, there, There's a couple of coaches under contract still, um, or looking for extensions. But Mo was very honest in saying he expects the majority of his coaching staff to return. So it's quite surprising that Mike Schilt was not one of those coaches. Now, I, I know that, you know, obviously in 2021, it was challenging to cover a team every day, just in the sense that you didn't have clubhouse access and, and, and you know, field access came very, very late. Uh, but was there any indication, not of like at a level that would equal him getting fired, but was there any indication at all, even of just, just a little bit of gear grinding, if you will, side comments, anything like that to make you think that Mike Schilt was frustrated with the front office? You know, that's a really good question because I can distinctly remember in the first half of the season, this was when the Cardinals at one point had three starters. They were without Jack Flaherty, which they were not expecting, and uh, they were without Carlos Martinez. They were without the majority of, of their starters they had planned for in spring training. And they had no relief help either. Their pitching was a huge problem in those first two months of the season. And multiple times we would ask, and we as in the media during these post-game Zoom sessions, would ask, you know, what what's the mindset in implementing these relievers? And, and why does this seem so monotonous in, in knowing exactly when pitcher what pitchers are coming in at what time? And he said multiple times, both pre-game and post-game, he and he can only work with what he has. And I think that's a comment that the front office in any organization really takes exception with because it's like a subtle jab as in saying, I'm not getting enough from the front office. I need help with the roster and they're refusing to do so. So to me, that's when I kind of got, re, saw some red flags there. When when a manager is saying, you know, basically to the media that he needs help with the roster construction and he's not getting some, that's a big red flag. You know, one of the most important things uh, about the the job of manager is is the relationship with the players. Um, how did how have the players reacted to this? The players were completely shocked. They were stunned. They had no idea. A lot of them found out around the same time as Twitter did. So this was again not something that was anything on their radar. I had a couple players text me like, "Are you serious? Or are you sure? Or how do you know?" This was completely unexpected. Schilt had the respect of the most prominent players in that clubhouse. He had the respect of Yadier Molina. He has the respect of Adam Wainwright. 
When the Cardinals went on that 17-game winning streak and reached the postseason, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado both applauded Mike Schilt's leadership and coaching style in the uh, the press conferences before that National League wildcard game, crediting Schilt for stabilizing the clubhouse. Schilt was often criticized outside by the public for being too steady, for not panicking, for not mixing up the lineup, or not making drastic changes when the club was underperforming. But it turns out the team really responded to that steadiness, to that confidence that his squad would turn around. Schilt's always been lauded as a, a player's manager, had all the respect of the clubhouse, and, and every single player in that clubhouse believed he was going to be there for 2022, which is expected to be the Cardinals' biggest window of contention. And so it seems to me that something really detrimental had to have gone down between the front office and Schilt for them to toss him to the side and bring in a new manager during uh, the offseason in which the 2022 season is so important. I, I want to talk for a second about kind of your job in the sense sure. that th- – so this happens – Mike Schild is gone. Um, like you said, you do have players reaching out to you. You're, you're a beat writer. You've established relationships with people. Um, the afternoon uh, of the Schilt firing, uh, Mo has a presser, um, uses kind of the vague term philosophical differences, doesn't go into details. Uh, Mike Schilt has a very brief media availability on Monday, doesn't take questions. Um, I, I, I talked to some people, you know, with the Cardinals who don't know exactly what happened. And, you know, the, the, the way it was put to me at one point was, well, you can't fight city hall. And that was about it. And, um, do you continue to chase this and try to figure out the why, or do you at some point just say, I'm never going to know why? I think that's, that's such a good question. It's kind of split in my mind because both sides seem very committed into whatever happened, happened right mm-hmm. there. This this Cardinals organization, whether it's the front office or Mike Schilt, seem very committed in keeping this in-house. So we can poke and we can prod as much as we can. But even if someone does offer something, you know, if they're not willing to go on the record, it doesn't really do any good. It just becomes rumors or speculation. And that can often be detrimental to reporting in, in the whole grand scheme of things. So while I feel like it is my job to keep checking in, and I've checked in, you know, pretty much nonstop since this news broke last Thursday, there is an overwhelming sense that there is a possibility we might not ever get the full story. And I I agree. I've also heard from people in the Cardinals organization that still don't know the full story. So Mm -hmm. whatever went down, I think we can confidently say was escalated by that all staff meeting. But, you know, they're pretty committed to keeping this in-house. And and that can be very frustrating both for a reporter and for the fans. So, you know, I don't think that I'll stop prodding at it. I don't think that I will stop asking questions or seeing if anyone's willing to talk. But there is a chance that this stays in-house as both sides prefer it because they're so committed to that. Uh, I think the term in-house probably also applies to whoever the next manager will be of the Cardinals. The Cardinals are a very uh, insular organization. Yes. Um, you know, the people at the top kind of came up through the Cardinal system. Um, they, 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 they staff their, the, both their front office and their, and for the most part, their, their big league staff with people who are Cardinals. Um, you know, we have the whole Cardinal way and all that kind of stuff. And it sounds right now, you know, in, in a world where there are managerial openings and people write their articles about all the stuff with, you know, with, with all the managerial candidates out there for the Cardinals, it sounds like all the candidates are, are internal. Yes, I would agree. Um, I, I think the two leading candidates in Oliver Marmol and Stubby Clapp 
Um, they obviously are internal, and I don't see the Cardinals chasing outside of the organization, um, even for a Matt Holiday or a Skip Schumacher, at least for the manager position. I think they'd probably consider bringing those two guys in if there's any interest for maybe a bench coach or coaching job position or something inside the organization. But as far as hiring a new manager, all signs, in my opinion, point to it being an internal candidate and for, for good reason. And what are those good reasons? I think when you've looked at how this organization has operated since Tony La Russa stepped down after winning the 2011 World Series, they've always promoted from within. And I, you see it from Matheny, when Matheny was fired, to bringing in Schilt. I would expect to see that same kind of tandem in whoever they're hiring next, you know. They're, that's why I think that, that Marmol is such an interesting candidate, because he essentially could do what the Cardinals have kind of developed as, as their sense, right? This is kind of what we've seen from over the last decade of promoting within and keeping it within the organization. And really, I think what the Cardinals are looking for, and, and Mo in particular, is a manager that can kind of develop more of the the new manager trends that we're seeing in baseball, where they work alongside the front office and the front office does actually make most of the baseball decisions. And I think if you bring in someone outside the organization who isn't familiar with how this Cardinals organization, for as finicky as they are sometimes, if you bring someone outside, they don't have that inside knowledge. You're teaching on the fly. And that's why I think it is so imperative that the Cardinals believe that their new manager comes from within because they're already familiar with the organization. Let's talk about the roster for a second. Um, you know, heading into the offseason, the Cardinals roster, in a lot of ways, is kind of set. You know, they're, they're, there's not a, a ton of free agents. Um, it feels like the lineup that we saw in, in 2021 is mostly going to be the lineup that we'll, we'll see in 2022. Um, do you think that their, their main focus will, as far as spending money, if they spend money, will be in the starting pitching market? I think so, too. And I think there's a lot of questions regarding the shortstop position and just the alluring free agent market of stacked with so many players. But I don't see the Cardinals as big spenders at the shortstop position. I still think that they are confident that some sort of tandem with Paul DeYoung, Edmundo Sosa, Tommy Edmond, and Nolan Gorman, who's their top position prospect knocking on the door, will work. I think they'll check in on the shortstop market, but I think most of these guys will be out of their price range. And I think that this team, which saw firsthand in 2021 what happens if you don't have enough starting pitching, will put an emphasis there. Right now, the Cardinals are proceeding for 2022 with four healthy starters. Adam Wainwright is back for one more year. That's huge. There should they have no caution or you know impending issues with Jack Flaherty's return after he missed most of the 2021 season with two injuries. Dakota Hudson seems good to go, as does Miles Michaelis. So they have four starters they're confident in. However, this club had four starters they were confident <laughs> right. in, in spring training, and they kind of all hit the wayside in the first four weeks of the season. So if the Cardinals are going to improve from a free agent aspect, I think they'll put the emphasis on starting pitching and hope that there's another kind of internal option for shortstop. Do you think that they're comfortable with Alex Reyes as their closer? No. <laughs> I do not. I do not. And it's it's a pretty interesting because coming into 2021, Alex Reyes was supposed to be using this season to be built up to start. And the plan right now is for 2022 for Alex to still be considered as a starter. Yet they're also building up their flamethrowing reliever in Jordan Hicks to be considered as a starter as well. Hicks right now is in the Arizona Fall League trying to ramp up, miss most of the season with injury. But I think the big question mark is what exactly are they going to do with Alex Reyes, who was really good in the first half? And as we all know, stumbled miserably in the second half. Um, 
you know, this is this was your first year covering the Cardinals. Um, you're not from St. Louis. You're from California. Um, what was what has been kind of your impression of, for lack of a better term, Cardinal Nation, which is a unique beast? Unique beast is a fantastic way to phrase um, that just that whole organization. You know, I've said from the beginning, just starting a beat in a, in a new city, a new state. You know, I was hired right before opening day. So I didn't even get a, a spring training, really, to kind of know these guys. Oh, wow. And right. It was it was escalated very quickly, but that's OK. And I think we forget because time just seems like no construct anymore. In the beginning of the season, we were just on Zoom. We had no in-person access. The Cardinals were especially cautious given what they went through in the 2020 season with COVID and their three separate outbreaks. So it was really hard to talk to people and formulate relationships. So I've always said, even from the beginning, I have never been bored on this beat. It did seem like a pretty extreme year. Um, it seemed like, you know, everything that put a, could have possibly gone wrong did. And then everything that could have gone right escalated so quickly in the matter of 17 games that it was kind of hard to, to really comprehend what was going on. But I ultimately think that this whirlwind of a first year has been helpful. Um, I, I now feel pretty confident in hoping that I can, you know, weather most most uh, surprises. Again, the, the Schilt thing really caught me off guard, as did everybody. Um so really, I think what I've learned in this first year um, and, and dealing with an organization and a very passionate fan fan base that has very high expectations is to just never really think that you have it all figured out. Because the second that you think that you are comfortable, the second that you think that you have all the answers and you're going to get a breather, something's going to happen where that all goes to the wayside. So that's really how I've dealt with the first year. It was just kind of like survive in advance and, and hope that by the end of the day, things were still in as much like order as they could be. And have you had St. Louis style pizza? I have not. I'm really scared because everyone talks to me about it and they're so opinionated and I just don't know. It's what fine. even is that? It's totally fine. Like, is it? It's, like, it's, not, it's, not, like, oh, it's, it's not it's not good. It's not like oh super special. Like it but it's totally fine. It's hard to fuck up People dough are and cheese like, and stuff. Stay away from it. So I don't, they really scared me. No, well yeah, well that's these are, you know. Look, I, to be fair, you're talking to the person who actually really likes Cincinnati chili. So what do I know? Oh, wow. But um, yeah, no, it's something else. So, uh, Katie, I want to thank you for coming on. If you want to follow Katie on Twitter, she is at Katie J. Wu. Uh, and you can follow her there and maybe she'll figure out what the hell happened with Mike Shilton. She'll tweet it one day. Maybe one day. Okay. Big dreams, big aspirations. <laughs> Katie, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks to Katie Wu for coming on, talking to us about the mysterious world of the St. Louis Cardinals. They're a little weird, right? I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're very, they're, they're iconoclastic. They're, they do things their own way, and I don't think anyone really does it their way. Yeah, it's a unique franchise, I think, across all of sports. I think that uh, even as other professional sports teams have been in that city, that they've had an outsized importance to the culture there, that that's probably had an impact on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the tenor of the franchise as a whole. They've been consistently competitive for basically my entire life, like from the Edgar Renteria era through now. They've just been consistently good as long as I can remember. So, right. Um, yeah, that's pretty unique. The Rams couldn't sustain themselves there and left, but the baseball team thrives. Uh, before we get into this, real quick, uh, two weeks ago uh, on this very, very podcast, your co-host was Mike Farron. Uh, Mike Farron had a press release this morning, <laughs> that's the only way to put it, uh, and Mike's uh, press release reads, in part, uh, last week I informed the Arizona Diamondbacks organization that I would not be returning in 2022 and instead pursuing other opportunities. Um, I have known Mike Farron for uh, two decades. Uh, he is uh, one of the... Uh, one of the best hearts of, of anyone I know. Um, and I'm always a, a absolute huge fan of anyone who bets on themselves, which is what Mike Farron's doing here. And I look forward to his success elsewhere and, and can't wait to see where he lands. And just best best wishes to Mike. Yep, totally agree. I've known Mike since, gosh, I forget. I met him in Wilmington at a game. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah, he and Jason were there. Um and that's when, you know, Mike and I have been friends ever since then. The last three times he and I have seen each other, even though we live 25 minutes from one another, have been in like airports or other cities. <laughs> the last time I saw him, I was connecting in Chicago from an early, like a 5.30 a.m. flight from leaving Allentown. Uh-huh. Um, and it was like, oh, it's Mike and Erica. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh and it's one of those where I didn't see them get on the plane because of everyone's mask. And it wasn't until I sat down and like looked to my right and they were just diagonal there. from me. Was, That's wow. funny. Uh, but yeah, Mike's an incredible broadcaster and a wonderful person. And he's got a hell of a voice and is a great hang. And that I every Sunday night, that would be great to listen to, in my opinion. I'm sure his phone will be springing off the hook. I can't wait to see where, where he ends up going. Our musical guest is a repeat of last week, and there's a reason for that. Um, the first is it's, it, it is Kowloon Walled City. You're listening to songs off their latest album, Piecework. Um, I think Kowloon Walled City is one of the best bands recording still, and they got ripped off last week. We played them last week, but uh, because of a last-minute, um, very understandable cancellation from our guest, um, there was no extra segment, so you got no extra song. You only had two songs. So you're getting three more today. Um, they are at inthewalledcity.com. Uh, full disclosure, I am good friends with their bass player. I have seen them live. I also think they're a great band, and I can't recommend all of their stuff uh, enough. This is uh, fantastic, heavy, heavy. Um, it's sludge rock, let's just call it. But they know how to uh, they know how to use the space. A lot of white space in their music, which I think is always an interesting choice and, and dramatic. And, and they're fantastic. And so thanks to Ian, thanks to Kyle and Old City for playing the music. Again, the album's called Piecework, and you should go buy it or you're a moron. I told uh, the story to you, but I'll, I'll tell it to the podcast. <laughs> um, at one point, right after the Astros had hired you, I was in Fall League and overheard 
one of the scouts, point at Ian and go, is that the guy with the earring who the Astros just hired? (laughs) (laughs) I spent about, uh, I may still, yeah, I spent my, for many people during my first few years, the Astros, I was the guy with the earring. For many people who didn't work for the Astros. And I remember actually being in the fall league my first year with the Astros and talking to a scout with another team. He said, you keep the earring in, huh? I said, yeah. He said, I got one, but I won't, I can't, I don't wear it at work. I said, you should. It doesn't matter. It's just a piece of jewelry. It was Ed um, Lynch. I'll cop to it. It was Ed Lynch. <laughs> the guy, the Astros. I don't so, uh, no. Ed I'm Lynch, by the way, huge head. Massive cranium. Yes. yes. Bochy sized. Uh, it's time What's for it your emails. Lynch? <laughs> it's time for your emails. Send us emails. They go to chinmusic at fangrass.com. I read them. I do not have an intern. Um, our first email comes from Tom with an H. And Tom writes, I was looking forward to a relaxed evening of baseball. I was thinking about sending in a rant about Dave Roberts, but I'm not one to pile on the obvious. I fully understand that the majority of managers value comes in aspects of the game other than pulling bullpen levers. But I also firmly believe that in all aspects of life, if you're in a position of leadership, your primary responsibility is to put those under you in a position to succeed. If you fail to do that, you're failing at your job. Why, with increased regularity, do managers in the postseason not put their players in the best position to succeed? I'll leave the Dodgers situation aside for previously stated reasons and focus on the the Sox-Astros game. Without McCullers and maybe Garcia, Verlander, and Greinke, and hang, hang on by a thread, down a game and on the road, they're not in a good spot especially with how the Sox offense seems. This this letter doesn't seem so good in retrospect all of a sudden, Tom. Um, why call in your ace and clearly the best pitcher of the series to do something he hasn't done since before we heard of COVID? That being Nate Eovaldi coming in to, to, I mean, get, to, to finish up a game he couldn't finish up. Uh, if this was truly your best chance of winning, why have you, checks notes, never done this in the regular season, especially when you're in real danger of not even making the playoffs? With all of the analytics involved in the game, how are managers allowed to make decisions that are where there is little or no data when the most is on the line? I'm not talking about things that make the most intrinsic sense, calling on your closer and for the last out of the eighth when you haven't done it all season. I know I promised not to touch on the Dodgers, but everyone in the house is sleeping and I can't get away with screaming into the void, so I have to put it here. How the fuck do you have multiple gold, glee, gold glove center fielders in the lineup and you throw a second baseman out in center field? Um... First of all, like, this is the vagaries of the game. Like, Nate Ivaldi got out of that game. Like, Nate Ivaldi had three strike three to Jason Castro. That's just, I, umpires miss calls sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't matter. This time it did. Nate Ivaldi threw strike three to Jason Castro. Period. And strike four. Team. It was perfect. And it was unbelievable. Yeah. And then edge strike four to Jason Castro was the hit. And so, like, you don't blame Ivaldi. I just think the reason you don't see in the regular season is because they're managing for 162 and the playoffs are managing for one. Um, we talked about this in the first segment, but yeah, it's gotten weird this year. Um, but I do, I honestly think like for all the criticism Dave Roberts is getting for the way he's used pitchers, I do think, uh, um, and I don't have knowledge of this, but I would, I'd bet hard on it that this is coming from the front office and they, they've just gotten in my mind a little too cute about it. Yeah, I would buy that. I, most of what I would have to say to this, I said in the first segment where I, I understand why this is occurring that Nathan Avaldi is just one of your best two or three guys. Um, and so you want him out there, but you don't really know how he's going to respond either in that moment. 
uh, or in his next start because of the weird situation that you're putting him in. And so, yeah, there's probably a lower stakes way to experiment with this in a way that is still meaningful to the the team's playoff aspirations during the end of the regular season. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some of it coming down from the front office too. And also, I think if you did a wisdom of crowds thing in your own locker room, don't you think a lot of the players as a group would draw the same conclusions about who to bring in when as the managers generally do? I think so. Yeah, I, think I, so. I, I definitely think so. But I also think I, we saw it in um, game five of the Dodgers Giants series where um, that afternoon it was suddenly announced that they were going to go with Corey Knebel uh, as an right. opener. And in the pregame presser, someone asked Roberts about it. And he said there was a vote in the room and I just had one vote. Yeah. So clearly it was coming from the front office. What's it like to take $10 million flyers on non-tendered relievers, Dodgers? <laughs> What's that like? Injured non-tendered relievers. $10 million. And um, so, yeah, so I, it's, it's, I think, you know, it's not just the manager. I think a lot of this is coming from the front office. We talked about this a little bit with Katie. Um, the interaction um, of front offices and, man- and, and managers has changed significantly. Um I don't know. Maybe I'm old school, but I've always felt like it's it's okay to talk to the manager about things and suggest things. But at the end of the day, I've I've always kind of been of the old school belief that is the front office's job to provide the manager with the best roster possible and then let him run the game. Um, but we see less and less of that these days. You also have like I also with- you know I also was spoiled in the sense that and I know people have mixed feelings about this guy and with good reason. Um, I was spoiled because AJ Hinch was the manager, and, and you could trust him to do the right thing for the most part. Um, some of it is very specific to the teams too. Like the Red Sox pitching staff is just made up of like, you know, Nick Pavetta can start a game for you, and then also give you fifty pitches out of the bullpen. Tinner Houck is also in this like, and they right, and they don't. There's and, and, and think about their bullpen. There's a lot of dudes you don't want in the game. <laughs> like they, you know, there's not a they have all sorts of they need a lot of innings. There's a lot of those arms. You're like, man, I don't want to put him in right now. Right, you're scared to put Darwin's and Hernandez in the game. Right, Marquis Perez, you do not implodes. want to put in the game. Yeah, you know, and so they have they have guys that are like, I don't know about this, and so they kind of have to do it. Yep. Next email comes from Paul, and Paul says, "I'm a big fan of the Chin Music podcast and listen to it regularly." <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Paul. I'm also a big music fan and a drummer. If you have a band, Paul, send us your music. We'll play you. Uh, so I appreciate that you weave music via a featured artist in the podcast as well. Anyway, I am a diehard Baltimore Orioles fan. We found the guy. And I'm fully on board with the rebuild that Mike Elias and crew are undertaking right now. Considering that you worked closely with Mike and Sig Maydahl in Houston for many years and went through a rebuild with them, ultimately culminating in a World Series championship and continued success since then, I'm curious to what type of relationship you have with both of them these days. I'm more interested to hear your thoughts on the progress with the rebuild up to this point and your level of confidence they can get the Orioles to a sustained level of success, similar to what you did in Houston together. I know the circumstances are not exactly the same in Baltimore as they were in Houston, both in terms of the level of competition within the respective divisions they play, but also the size of the markets and payroll levels the respective ownerships can justify. But in terms of ability to execute a rebuilding plan, put the team in the best position to contend for an extended period of time, I'd like to know if you think Mike and Sig can get this done based on your experience working with them and knowing both men as well as you do. Um, I did work closely with both. Uh, I still am in touch with both. I, I, you know, if I counted the minutes on my cell phone, I, I'm sure I've talked to Mike more than Sig um, since they both went to Baltimore. Um, 
It's tough. So I would call so far, I would call what the what the Orioles have done as slow and steady with an emphasis on slow. Um, I don't think they've screwed anything up, but it's been really slow. Um, I think it's easy to look at their system and, and go, man, I see a bunch of stuff here that's really good. Um, but now the questions become, how do they get to the next level, the level after that, and the level after that? In, in my mind, when you're doing what the Baltimore Orioles are doing, there's there's four levels. Right now, they're at level one, which is we suck. Um, we're focused on, on building up a farm system. I think if you're the Orioles, you know, when Mike took over, they're also focused on just simply creating an international department, um, simply creating a player development system that works with the way with their philosophies. Um, That's a huge challenge. Player development is the biggest challenge in the world, I think, in running a baseball team. Especially Uh, coming from where the Orioles were on the pitching side. Exactly. And so there's just all this stuff, huge, huge amounts of work to do behind the scenes to create an organization that can make a winner. Um, But as far as the big league team goes, they're still level one, which is we suck. Level two is where the Detroit Tigers were this year. We're not good yet, but there's some young players here. You, you know, when you come to our place, you actually have to kind of sit up and pay attention. On the right day, we can just out-athlete you. Um, and, and 70-something wins, right? That's the next level. I think the Orioles are in position to be to get to that. Um, and then it gets more complicated. Then that's the level three, which is going from 70-something to 80-something. And if some things break right for us, maybe we'll compete for a wild card or something and play some games in September that matter. And to do that, you A, you need to recognize you're on the verge of that. And to do that, you have to do the thing that we simply have not seen them challenge at. So we don't know if they can do it right or not, which is spend some money. You have to go fill your holes with external candidates, which they have not done at all, obviously. There's your episode um, title right there. What's that? Fill your holes with external candidates. <laughs> And so, um, you know, and then that's level three and level four is obviously yeah, is. level four is obviously we're good, you know. And, and so what are we going to do to make that extra push? And um, I just don't like I, I think they're on the verge of level two, but like level three, we just don't have enough of a track record. Uh, so I don't know either of those individuals. Never spoken with either of them. Um, from my perspective, and I'm always removed an extra beat from the Florida-based teams as I am the Arizona teams where I can see so much of it happening in yeah, person. Yeah, it's all right in front of you. Uh, this, they've been in a go-wide acquire prospect volume mode for basically the whole time. Yeah. Except when Adley Rutschman was staring them in the face, who I do think is the best prospect in baseball and it's not particularly close. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. They, they've taken that approach in the draft with underslot guys early and then spreading the love later in the draft with overslot guys mixed in. And then on the pro side, it has been like, like here's a great example of the stylistic juxtaposition between the, the pretty old school Padres and the Orioles. When the Padres traded Brad Hand, they got back Francisco Mejia. And that was it. And... Uh, when Dylan Bundy was traded to the Angels, they got back like a poo-poo platter of four or five recently <laughs> drafted college arms. With interesting characteristics at some, inter- on some point. Right. Who they could apply coherent development to. And it is like that type of thing that the Orioles have been doing, which is like allow them to amass what 
per hour calculations at the site is the best farm system in baseball. A lot of that is built into Adley being the top guy and Grayson Rodriguez being the best pitching prospect in baseball. Uh, in the Whit- in the Forrest Whitley, <laughs> Mackenzie Gore, Alex Reyes seat. So enjoy that while it lasts, the spinal tap drummer of baseball things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, it's not like they are a dour uh, performance-driven org. Like there are tools here too. Reed Trimble, uh, Anthony Servideo, Kyle Stowers. Um, these are Dante Williams. These are pretty toolsy yeah. college guys who they drafted who are kind of risky and, and sexy in, in a way. They're not like boring, you know, plug and play. You know, this guy can succeed at double A and the chances of him being something or, or us trading him for something are pretty high. Like they, they've still targeted interesting athletes in an upside way. John Rhodes from Kentucky. Um, Michael Desson, who they got from the Rockies in the Michael Givens trade last year. A guy they plucked out of the DSL is really interesting too. Um, so it's not like they're they're taking only a performance like uh, finance driven approach to this right right in terms of the players are targeting but in terms of the way they're like rolling one guy into several almost all the time definitely has that feel so yeah i i took yeah i mean i i wouldn't be surprised if the orioles didn't weren't dreadful next year i would be surprised if they went 70 something um, yeah i think that's about right you can see the critical mass of pitching depth is starting to it's arrive coming. It's, yeah. it's time to start looking at these guys obviously um, you know, and I think we'll see Rutschman in the big leagues next year, um, probably in May, um, for reasons we all know. Six and a half percent swinging strike rate this year. That's it. It's one of the top 25 lowest swinging strike rates in the minors. The guy and, had maybe and it comes with power. Switch hitting power, elite defensive catcher who is, you know, a clubhouse firebrand. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. So I, don't think it's a, yeah. Now that Wander's a big leaguer, I don't think it. I don't think there's any debate on who the best prospect in baseball is. I don't. You can right. debate. The debate all, is: is this guy an eighty-two? That's, right. That's you it. could you could debate who's number two till the cows come home, but I don't think there's any debate on number one. Agree. Um, let's skip this last email. We're gonna get to that one at a later time. Uh, it's time to catch up with Eric. Eric, you have a story. All right. So last night I was talking with Brendan Golowski. Uh, one of the contributors at our site, we were just talking about Korean prospects and Diamondbacks prospects. We were on the phone for like an hour and a half. We got done. The playoff game was basically decided at that point. The so Red Sox-Astros game? Yeah. Okay. So I decided to myself, uh, I'm going to smoke a bowl and go on a walk and catch some Pokemon. <laughs> Using the Pokemon Go app available on iOS right. and Android devices. All right. So... I pull up my thing, and on your Pokemon like map, it will show you where a Pokemon that you don't have yet is. Yes. Okay. So I see one that I don't have, and I set my little location tag to walk there. Yes. It takes me through a part of my neighborhood. I've now lived here a year. It takes me through a part of my neighborhood that I've never walked in before. And as I started this walk... I like entered a weird twilight zone cul-de-sac on like the other end of my neighborhood where I haven't been before. So I start walking in this direction. I make a turn up a street that I haven't been yet. The houses are very cool and I haven't seen them before. So I'm intrigued by that. Then uh, walking 
like turning on the road in front of me is a guy who I've seen in my neighborhood a couple other times before. Just walking around. Yeah, and this guy's got a strange kind of vibe. His behavior is at times erratic. Oh, no. Um, like, you know, he is someone who, as it's late, latish at night now, uh, or definitely like the sun is setting. And uh, like, it's just weird to kind of see this guy around. He's not really doing anything. He's just sort of meandering and has been weird in our neighborhood before. So now I'm like following this guy into this part of the neighborhood that I've never been before. We get to a point where there's a fork in the road and the fork in the road, and I can see it on my Pokemon map, uh, eventually just loops back around to itself. So this guy has started to grow kind of paranoid of me um, at this point, like following him up the hill. Uh, And he's like kind of making it known to me that that's happening. Uh, So I decide at this fork that I'm going to go in the other direction. How is he making this known to you? He's just like constantly looking back at me. Uh Yeah. Um, And like, like a lot. Um, And, you know, I'm obviously noticing this, which in a way is like not good because it's making him rather than just focus on my phone, you know, which would maybe quell his concerns. I'm also like looking at him. (laughs) Uh, So we go different directions at the fork in the road. At that fork in the road, down to the side of the street, is like an embankment that kind of looks like uh, like one of those runaway truck stops almost. It's not that big. It's just a patch of grass that is between some of the houses. It is technically public park land uh, leading to the little Finger Lakes that I live near in Tempe. And down one of those embankments was another person. And this person is doing, is gesturing in a strange way, like off to themselves, they're sort of facing the water. Uh, they're between people's so houses. They're gesturing they, to nobody. They're just sort of gesturing. They're like, sometimes to me, it looked like they were doing Tai Chi or something. Sometimes it looked as though they were gesturing in a way where they were like in agony or thinking about something that they regretted. Like this person is also maybe not doing great. Um, and... They're far enough away from me that I can't really tell anything else about them. I don't really can't really see what they look like. It's it's dark at this point, but they're just behaving strangely over there. They're not far away from people's houses in this neighborhood, but they are on this stretch of grass that is just sort of like a piece of public park that and, leads you know, to a little, pier, no, little no right? man's land. And so now it's like, all right, so I do I start to do my loop. And those little patches exist between all the houses in this area where like it's not doesn't really belong to anybody. There's a lot of foliage uh, and it's just like these stretches of grass and water that run between people's houses. So I start my loop and as I'm making my loop at some point uh, I catch the Pokemon I wanted to catch. And I know that this the, the guy who I've seen walking around like we'll call him creepy guy for lack of a better term. And like acknowledge that this guy's probably not doing well and it's not his fault. He never crosses paths with me. He just sort of disappears. Okay. I don't see him again. And so as I'm walking and I know mindfully as I'm walking back down the other side of the loop that this guy could have just darted into any of these outcoves of like grass that are private, but between people's homes. And, you know, keep in mind, I was stoned and so I'm paranoid already. And, uh, so I start to, you know, get like that creepy, chilly vibe. I don't know where this guy is. I walk back down the loop 
And I decide that I kind of want to see what else this other person who was gesturing <laughs> is doing, right? Okay. So now I kind of double back and uh, position myself in a parking lot where I'm catching Pokemon and watching this person do their thing off in the distance and um, in a place where, like, I can't really be seen. I can see them, but I'm not going to, like, be seen by them. And just, like, kind of see what's going on. And I'm not ever going to call the cops on a person like this or anything, but it was just interesting to me. So I'm standing there and I'm catching my Pokemon and kind of, like, watching this person do their thing. And a car passes me. And I feel kind of seen. I'm like, eh, you know, if that person who drove by in the car knew what I was doing, they'd probably think less of me for it. And then a second car drives by, and I have that feeling again, and I say, all right, it's time to go. Mm. Um, so I go back through the route, like, behind a wall where I had doubled back uh, to have, like, this vantage. And this person is still doing what – I can't determine what it is they're trying to do. They are in some sort of distress at times, it looks like, and other times they seem very serene. It was and, cl- and clearly alone. Yeah, and definitely alone. Okay. So now I walk, like, back around this wall in a parking lot. I come out the other side of the lot out of that, you know, the Tai Chi person's line of sight and waiting for me. This is where the story really starts to get weird. Waiting for me on the other side of that. No, is a woman in a van. It was the second car. (gasps) It was the second car that had passed by me. And so like I'm walking behind a wall and come out the other side of the wall and there's the van. And I don't remember what she said to me initially, but uh, she says something to me and her lights are off with the car and stuff. And so I think, oh no, like did this woman's car stall or whatever? Do I need to help someone with something? So I go over to the car. All right. So now this, this woman, I'm talking to this woman uh, right next to the driver's side window of her car. And she is also clearly not doing great. Um, she has an electric wheelchair attached to the back of her van. There's a lot of clutter in the van. She was clearly just crying. Oh, and Jesus. she says to me that she lives in an apartment complex nearby. They want to evict her. She's out looking for a new place because they don't treat her well there. They are like actively making it hard for her to uh, live there because of her disability. Like they don't feel like dealing with it and accommodating it. And I, you know, buy all of this stuff. It seems plausible to me. She is also absolutely hammered, like behind the wheel of this car. Mm-hmm. It's an older, you know, well into middle age, uh, very heavy woman who can't get around on her own. She has this electric wheelchair on the back of her van, um, and she's absolutely hammered. So now at this point, like I don't know what to do. I'm she's fucking so drunk, Kevin. That I don't feel good about just being like, hey, I'm going to say this thing that gets me away from you and probably pisses you off. And now you're going to drive this one ton <laughs> vehicle away like into my neighborhood. I don't I don't know if I want to do that. I also don't want to call the cops on this lady because uh-huh. that's just not a thing I tend to want to do to anyone. And she's talking about her issues with her apartment complex eviction stuff. And she is so hammered that it's hard to keep everything straight. She asks me how old I am three times within the first couple minutes that we're talking. And so I just decide like, I'm going to try to ride this out, see if she can sober up here in front of me and send her on her way. She's talking about like how rich she grew up 
hanging out with like Kurt Cobain and Dale Chihuly in Seattle and then like living in Florida. She talks about like her father assaulting her and um, pouring hot coffee, throwing her in the shower and then pouring hot coffee on her, like all kinds of messed up stuff. And again, like she's totally hammered. Are you just kind of, are you just nodding your head with this? Are you, are you engaged or? I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm trying to be nice. And she's also talking about like vaccine, Bill Gates, conspiracy stuff. Oh, wow. Talked about how she used to be drinking buddies with Bill Gates. Like, I don't know how much of any of this stuff to believe at this point when we start getting into like, you know, Kurt Cobain and I hung out and I, she, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it was a lot of stuff. Then at one point I'm feeling like, you know, behind my right shoulder, like I'm massaging in that neck shoulder area and, uh, then she tells me to turn around and I think that like someone is there. Uh, and so then I feel her after I've turned around. Oh no. I feel her grab my shoulders and she starts to like give me a massage. Now this is, this woman can't get around on her own. Okay. And so here's a great example of like the difference in the gender dynamic when it comes to like sexual assault, basically. And this has happened to me before where drunk older women have like touched me. Okay. And so I don't feel threatened by this. I know almost instantly that this is just going to make for a good story. I'm not so high anymore. Okay. But I turn around. There were a couple other times during, you know, the course of our conversation where she tried to touch me. Okay. And so eventually, like, she stopped slurring so bad. She's definitely trying to keep me around. I asked her if she was doing okay, and she was just like, no. Um, She told me her name was stuff I've been able to piece together in the last 12 hours. Like, she did just lose a court case to her apartment building a couple days Mm -hmm. ago, and I do think that she has just been evicted and is, like, living in her car right now. Um, And then, like, I look... Basically, like, I find a way to end our conversation. She seems okay enough to drive. Probably not really, but, like, right. it had been a while. I walked back into the door at, like, midnight. <laughs> like, I don't know really how long I had been out there or how long I was conversing with this woman. Um, it was just weird. I just never been in this pocket of my neighborhood before. And some of it is definitely that, you know, like, I had just had some weed. But it was super creepy and weird. It was one of the wildest, like... Did you not run into creepy guy again? No, I still don't know what happened to that guy. Oh, okay. but while I was talking with this woman, the person who was doing the weird gesturing and movements... Yes. ...off to the side, they did emerge. And it is just like a dude who I would see at the new and used record store, like flannel shirt, beanie, um, you know, those thick-rimmed black... Uh-huh. With like, you know, glasses like uh, the Dodgers coaching staff seems to be issued or the, the Giants coaching staff seems to be issued. Excuse me. Um, totally did had nothing like if you just walked by me anywhere else, I w- it would have been totally, you know, in place. I have no idea what he was doing. Um, but yeah, the other creepy guy, I have no idea where he, he like evaporated somewhere in that loop. So I don't know if the convenience store is in there somewhere or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, what, what time did you leave your house? Let me look and see when Golowski and I stopped talking on my phone. Like how many hours were you gone? So Golowski and I, we ended up wrapping up on Slack because something happened with my phone. 
Um, and we, he tried to call me. I want to say 1030 is when I left the house. Okay. And then was gone till, till midnight, basically. Um, and like, I have worked up, I didn't go very far from my house. Like I've worked up more of a sweat telling the story than I did on my walk last night. And you, Um, but you had enough information of this woman to actually like Google this person. Yeah. Yep. Um, throughout the course of the conversation, there were just enough nuggets in there, Mm -hmm. uh, that I could kind of, yeah, that like I found, there's not a whole lot about her out there. Um, I found an old Facebook post of hers, like thanking a church in Tempe for uh, like being salvation for her, like Mm -hmm. after her arrival in Arizona, um, like, you know, living a difficult life in in an electric wheelchair. And then the court records from her recent um, eviction, basically, she went to court and just from the looks of things like lost. It lost, yeah. And this is just within the last, like, October 7th, October 19th. This is when the, the dates in the, the court system uh, pop up. So, um, yeah, she, when she left, like, she made a right and went further down south, uh, to, like, towards the Guadalupe area of Tempe and just sort of, like, vanished. Her taillights just sort of vanished in that direction. So um, the apartment she said she lived at was nearby. So I will be on the lookout for this for this lady and hope that she comes through the other side okay. Like, it just sounds like she... Some of the stuff that she's talked about checks out. Like, at some points I thought, this lady's definitely hammered and lying to me. But then she's talking about very specific stuff about growing up in Seattle and... Uh, like the plot of land in the middle of the city that they lived on, like three quarters of an acre comes from like a lot of money. She had nice clothes on, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It was really weird. It was weird. It Are was there weird. any lessons we learned on this night? No, I was just like, <laughs> no, yeah, no, <laughs> I kind of, I can't, I don't know. I don't know. It just, I'm glad I like living here. Stuff like last night is not a deterrent for me. It is. No. It just makes life more interesting. I kind of dig. You know, I went to college in Philly, so Philly, nothing will ever be as wild as Philly. No. Um, this is like a low-grade version of that where um, it's not boring to live here, basically. <laughs> so that's Adventure Time with Eric. If you have any questions about his trip, <laughs> um, chin music. At fangraphs.com, and maybe we'll bring them back up for, for a follow up. Um, or it, maybe there'll be an update to the story one day. I don't know. There, maybe, yeah. You might, I mean, it sounds like creepy guys are part of your life now, and you'll see them again. I have a feeling that I will see that individual again, yes. So uh, this is not anywhere near as interesting, but like we have a, a, new, a new occurrence here in the hood where, so I live uh, on a street just off the main drag of DeKalb, off Lincoln Highway. And so just one street uh, north is, is the street I live on. And um, I, I live on one side of my house is a parking lot. And so it's a parking lot for the bank that's on the main drag. But this parking lot is literally big enough for 17 banks, right? And so all of the parking lot next to my house basically is 24-7 empty, right? Because everyone's parking much closer to the bank because there's never only four people there anyway. So I basically live next to an abandoned parking lot. Um, on one side of my house. Um, and over the last week or so, at some point in the afternoon, 
two cars pull up, park, and out pop. It's a it's a varying size, but it's the same people. Uh, somewhere between five and ten teenagers. They look like they're high school aged, right? And they just get out of the car and just hang out, and and they're the happiest people in the world. They just they hug and like a guy's just kind of sitting there looking at his phone. Um, bouncing a ball on a tennis racket, like it's a, it's like a drawing of teenagers. Uh, they they listen to some music. They're like messing around and trying to you know fit one of the people in the trunk of the car. Like and they just come and they hang out for half an hour and have the most wonderful time and can't stop laughing and stuff. And then they leave. And I can't figure out for life what's going on. But I like them. They seem super happy. Uh, I just think I remember being that age in to call it suburban pennsylvania is a little bit generous we would have to drive 25 30 minutes into allentown or into bethlehem right to really and we weren't old enough to do anything truly interesting and so you you spend time in the wawa parking lot you spend time in the sheets parking lot and like people drag race on the stretch of highway near it you know like so I can sympathize with that. There's just a place where you're, I'm glad that they were having a good time. They're great. I thought they were always like like super energized and chill and fun. Yep. Sometimes you're just looking for your own. You need your space. You need your space. Space, yeah. Um, it's time for a moment of culture besides what you've already just provided us, which was That's quite culture. a moment of culture. Um, you have, you have, your moments of culture have been, um, the word I'm looking for here is wide ranging. Certainly off the beaten path. Um, what do you have this week? I went to see John Mulaney uh, on Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. I don't know. One of the days that he was here in Arizona. He did one night. Went and saw John Mulaney. How was John Mulaney? Uh, he was very good. There is... A weird. How would you describe the tone of discourse around this poor guy? What is the dumb reason as that hell? It got to this point for this individual. It got that way. So okay, so John Mulaney is a very good comedian and a funny person, and he recently got clean. Um, he's had numerous up and down. He's an up and down relationship with, with drug and alcohol addiction. Um, and he's currently clean, and he, but he also uh, got divorced and is now with some famous woman who I, I can't remember her name. Uh, Olivia Munn, who rose to fame on like doing a video game TV G4 show. G4 TV, yeah. Yeah. And then and, dated, you know, the Packers quarterback for a little while. And was and that pe- the, the crux, perhaps, of a family division there, too? <laughs> and people got really mad at him for... Now the fact, for, and I don't know. I think it sounds like they they felt like they. It's always like the danger of being celebrity. Like they they felt like they knew him, and the, and the, and they felt like disappointed that he and his wife slept, and all of a sudden he was like doing what maybe felt from the outside like a cliche. Maybe they're great together. I don't know. Like a cliche kind of what famous people do and date pretty people. Like I don't know. It just felt really dumb. But what like, about I, it this? Kind of is like, it just he's clean cut? Yeah, and people relate to him. They go, oh, I'm, I'm like guy him. That I, and they go, oh, yeah, we're like him. And then they go, oh, shit, I'm not like him. It's dumb. Like, I don't understand why you're mad at him. I don't 
Yeah, the, I don't know if anger is. There are probably people who feel disappointed by, like I, the group of people who were there to see him was wide ranging. He has always implied that his audience is younger and skews toward women, which is fascinating because that's just atypical of most male comedians. Um, Comedy crowd. Yeah. So um, I, I, you know, I like comedy as a thing. I don't have like the level of parasocial relationship with this person. That, that I think I, that's what happened. I think it, yeah, it was a parasocial relationship and that's why people got mad and it, it was dumb. Yeah. But anyway, his whole hour was basically about his, um, you know, rehab and his intervention. Was this like um, in a comedy club or, so, or more of a theater This was in setting? a theater. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty rare for me to go see comedy in a theater. I just prefer the yeah, smaller Yeah, for room. sure. Um, but this was a thing. I haven't seen this guy live yet and think he's good. Um, he's especially good, in my opinion, off the cuff, like doing panel and um, I like go through deep dive phases where it's like, you know, anything Greta Gerwig has ever said on the internet, I need to hear it now. Um, <laughs> and so I went on like a Bill Hader version of that. And, you know, he, there's like them doing stuff, talking about documentary now or whatever at the 92nd Street Y, where it's just like Bill Hader and John Mulaney being funny mm -hmm. for an hour and a half. <laughs> um, and so like this guy's just funny to me. And, um, and yeah, he it was clear in some of the stuff that he has said publicly to me that he's had super duper real issues with drugs and alcohol in the past. Oh, so yeah. I was kind of shocked. Did, was it, you know, interesting that the what he portrays on stage visually is so um, innocent Nor looking? Normie. Yeah. Um, at verse, like compared to the lifestyle that he seemed to be living, like, yeah, that, but the fact that he relapsed was not, that's the thing that addicts do. So, um, but yeah, the whole hour was mostly about that. Uh, and it is interesting that we're for when a person gets to the place where the source of their material is the reaction to their own lives. It's, I don't know. He's in that place right now. Right. Um, I don't know what that would be like. That's not a thing that I would like. So he addressed the kickback. Oh yeah. It like, wasn't just the story of what he was dealing with. It was the story of the kickback as well. We all had to put our phones in locked, lockable sleeves. Really? As we entered the theater so that no one could record any of his material and put it online. So I don't want to be guilty of like um, describing, you know, express, I need to express written consent from John Mulaney to describe the events of this game. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, but yeah, like he's, he doesn't really talk about the relationship stuff, um, but he talks about the, the drug stuff. He talks about how much cocaine he, he had on him when, he arrived at two hours late for his intervention. <laughs> yeah, he tells the story of the intervention. There's a video, but he told it to one Seth of the Myers. late night. Thank you, Seth Myers. Uh, yeah, it was. Yep. It, it was funny about a dark concept. But it's, it's funny. Funny. Yeah. Yep. So that was uh, that was my moment. I haven't, um, you know, it was all Vax show. Uh, right. So it was. It wasn't totally full, but it wasn't like going to a D backs game where I can distance so it was like probably the most populated indoor thing that i have done right uh since the pandemic so mm. and then the other thing i'll mention is there's a i don't know the title of it there's a, a youtube account where someone is posting high-speed video 
of Japanese amateur players, and it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> you sent it to me. It's great. It's great. Um, I would talk about a movie that's on Apple TV, um, and I didn't even realize that. So, I, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you, if you have an Apple TV, you turn on the Apple TV, it's like, here's stuff you should watch. Um, and it was, there's a documentary directed by the filmmaker, Todd Haynes, about the Velvet Underground. Okay. And I was like, oh, I'll see that once it's free streaming somewhere. Because I thought it was like one of those things like in theater. And if I watch it now, I'm going to pay 20 bucks. I'm like, I'm not going to do that right now. But it's actually just on Apple TV Plus or whatever they call their service. And so you can watch it if you have that. You can just watch it. Um, the Bell Underground, I, a, I really like the Bell Underground. Um, but there's such a strange band for a lot of reasons. And one of it is just like, and it's always been like a cliche about them. Like no one listened to them when they were around, but everyone who did started a band. Um, like one of the more influential bands in the history of rock music, um, period, uh, way more important yeah. than the Beatles. And so, you know, it, and it's, you got a lot of great footage, um, because they were so involved with the sixties kind of New York underground, Andy Warhol factory world. And there was kind of always a camera on at the factory. And so there's tons of amazing footage. Um, it's kind of, it was very adapt. There were certainly things. Hi, puppy. There's President Pierce. And um, and so, uh, but you know, things in this that I, that I did not know, and I thought I knew the band pretty well. Um, it was just kind of the timing was sad because like Lou Reed's dead. You know what I mean? And so I would like yeah. to hear Lou Reed's perspective today on this. And um, you know, the guitar player, one of the main guitar players, Jordan Morrison, is still alive and uh, but way out of music and, and a history teacher at UT or something like that and, and clearly didn't participate. Um, and so it, it was, you know, they're leaving a lot on John Cale, who seems really cool. Uh, but it's like you just wish there were more perspectives, like the kind of the joy of the whole thing was Jonathan Richmond, who's kind of wonderful and strange and, and has had a fantastic musical career, who was actually into the band at the time of the band, which is hard to find. Um, he saw them like 40 or 50 times. And so to hear from someone who like was around and seeing shows while they were active was, was interesting. Um, I just thought it was really well done and a really nice in-depth look at, a, at an amazing band. That, and I was surprised this hasn't happened sooner because there's just so much footage for such an obscure band because of where they were at the time. Um, but really interesting stuff. And, you know, got the, the Kale's experimental stuff going into it. And then, you know, being part of the Warhol factory, then being not part of the Warhol factory and, dealing with Lou Reed's um, difficultness slash instability at times. Um, I thought it was excellent and, and a, kind of a must-watch for any music fan. You deviated from the itinerary that I was saying. Yeah, I forgot that that was I that was this week. I was going to talk about the – we'll save the Great British Baking Show for another time. Okay. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 That's a – the best thing about that show, real quick, is just that – you know, in a world of reality TV where everyone is pitted against each other, it's just the utter support of that show. And the like the, the nonstop 100 degree positiveness of that show. Like there's no yep. there's literally no dislike or ri- even rivalries or anything like that. Everyone just loves each other. That's what I like about that show so much. I like that they've started to include folks from other countries more often. Mm hmm. And one day hope that there is some American heel on the show. <laughs> and can it please be me? 
<laughs> what are you gonna do? You know, like they'll, 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 they'll shoot to some guy and he can't he can't find his flower and you'll have it in your in your in your proofing drawer. Oh yeah, we're oh see, I haven't even <laughs> thought about the sabotage pieces. Yeah, of it. yeah exactly. like where I'm unplugging ice boxes. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, my gelée hasn't set. You can play like cut, an American. Cut to me. Right. <laughs> getting to get into a, getting the fisticuffs motley, with Paul Hollywood. Giggling. Right. <laughs> I think we're done here, Eric. Thanks for having me on, bud. Thanks for coming on as always, and and thanks to everyone so much for listening. Uh, enjoy the rest of the playoffs. When we talk to you next week, we'll be well into the World Series. That'll be exciting. We'll have a special guest for you. We'll have music for you. All sorts of good stuff. So we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>